This is Audible. When one speaks of awakening, it means dehypnotization, coming to your senses. But of course, to do that, you have to go out of your mind. <laughs> Sounds True presents Out of Your Mind, essential listening from the Alan Watts Audio Archives. Many of these lectures were recorded during the late 1960s in the home of Alan Watts, an old ferry boat in Sausalito, California. We begin with a lecture on the nature of consciousness with author, philosopher, and self-proclaimed spiritual entertainer, Alan Watts. I find it a little difficult to say what the subject matter of this seminar is going to be because it's too fundamental to give it a title. I'm going to talk about what there is. Now, the first thing, though, that we have to do is to get our perspectives with some background about the basic ideas which, as Westerners living today in the United States, influence our everyday common sense, our fundamental notions about what life is about. And there are historical origins for this, which influence us more strongly than most people realize. Ideas of the world which are built into the very nature of the language we use and of our ideas of logic and of what makes sense altogether. And these basic ideas I call myth, not using the word myth to mean simply something untrue, but to use the word myth in a more powerful sense. A myth is an image in terms of which we try to make sense of the world. And we at present are living under the influence of two very powerful images, which are, in the present state of scientific knowledge, inadequate. And one of our major problems today is to find an adequate, satisfying image of the world. Well, that's what I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to go further than that, not only what image of the world to have, but how we can get our sensations and our feelings in accordance with the most sensible image of the world that we can manage to conceive. All right, now, the two images which we have been working under for 2,000 years and maybe more are what I would call two models of the universe, and the first is called the ceramic model, and the second, the fully automatic model. The ceramic model of the universe is based on the book of Genesis, from which Judaism, Islam, and Christianity derive their basic picture of the world. And the image of the world in the book of Genesis is that the world is an artifact 
it is made. As a potter takes clay and forms pots out of it, or as a carpenter takes wood and makes tables and chairs out of it. Don't forget, Jesus is the son of a carpenter and also the son of God. So the image of God and of the world is based on the idea of God as a technician, potter, carpenter, architect, who has in mind a plan and who fashions the universe in accordance with that plan. So basic to this image of the world is the notion, you see, that the world consists of stuff, basically. Primordial matter, substance, stuff, as pots are made of clay. And the potter imposes his will on it and makes it become whatever he wants. And so in the book of Genesis, the Lord God creates Adam out of the dust of the earth. In other words, he makes a clay figurine and then he breathes into it and it becomes alive because the clay becomes informed. By itself it is formless, it has no intelligence and therefore it requires an external intelligence and an external energy to bring it to life and to put some sense into it. And so in this way we inherit a conception of ourselves as being artifacts, as being made. And it is perfectly natural in our culture for a child to ask its mother, how was I made? Or who made me? And this is a very, very powerful idea. But for example, it is not shared by the Chinese or by the Hindus. A Chinese child would not ask its mother, how was I made? A Chinese child might ask its mother, how did I grow? Which is an entirely different procedure from making. You see, when you make something, you put it together, you arrange parts, or you work from the outside to the in, as a, as a sculptor works on a stone or as the potter works on clay. But when you watch something growing, it works in exactly the opposite direction. It works from the inside to the outside. It expands, it burgeons, it blossoms, and it happens all over itself at once. In other words, it, the, the, the original simple form, say, of a, of a living cell in the womb, progressively complicates itself. And that's the growing process, and it's quite different from the making process. And so there is, for that reason, a fundamental difference between the made and the maker. And this image, this ceramic model of the universe, originated in cultures where the form of government was monarchical. And where, therefore, the maker of the universe was conceived also at the same time in the image of the king of the universe. King of kings, lord of lords, the only ruler of princes who dost from thy throne behold all dwellers upon earth. I'm quoting the Book of Common Prayer. 
And so all those people who are oriented to the universe in that way feel related to basic reality as a subject to a king. And so they are on very, very humble terms in relation to whatever it is that works all this thing. I find it odd in the United States that people who are citizens of a republic have a monarchical theory of the universe. Because we are carrying over from the very ancient Near Eastern cultures the notion that the Lord of the universe must be respected in a certain way. People kneel, people bow, people prostrate themselves. Because, the, and you know what the reason for all that is, that nobody is more frightened of everybody else than a tyrant. He sits with his back to the wall and his guards on either side of him. And he has you face downwards on the ground because you can't use weapons that way. When you come into his presence, you don't stand up and face him because you might attack. And he has reason to fear that you might because he's ruling you all. And the man who rules you all is the biggest crook in the bunch. Because he's the one who's succeeded in crime. The other people are pushed aside because they, the criminals, the people we lock up in jail, are simply the people who, who didn't make it. <laughs> so naturally, uh, the real boss sits with his back to the wall and his henchmen on either side of him. And so when you design a church, what does it look like? Catholic church with the altar as it used to be. It's changing now because the Catholic religion is changing. But the Catholic church has the altar with its back to the wall at the east end of the church. And uh, there the altar is the throne and the priest is the chief vizier of the court and he is making obeisance to the throne in front but there is the throne of God, the altar. And uh, all the people are facing it and kneeling down. <coughs> and a great Catholic cathedral is called a basilica from the Greek basileus, which means king. So a basilica is the house of a king. And the ritual of the Catholic Church is based on the court rituals of Byzantium. A Protestant church is a little different, but basically the same. The furniture of a Protestant church is based on a judicial courthouse. The pulpit. The judge in an American court wears a black robe. He wears exactly the same dress as a Protestant minister. And everybody sits in these boxes. Like there's a jury box, there's a box for the judge, there's a box for this, a box for that. And those are the pews in an ordinary kind of colonial type Protestant church. So both these uh, kinds of churches, which have an autocratic view of the nature of the universe, decorate themselves, are architecturally constructed in accordance with political images of the universe. One is the king and the other is the judge, your honor. There's sense in this. Uh, when in court you have to refer to the judge as your honor, it stops the people engaged in litigation from losing their tempers and getting rude. There's a, there's a certain sense to that. But when you want to apply that image to the universe itself, to the very nature of life, 
it has limitations. For one thing, the idea of a difference between matter and spirit. This idea doesn't work anymore. Long, long ago, physicists stopped asking the question, what is matter? They began that way. They wanted to know what is the fundamental substance of the world. And the more they asked that question, the more they realized they couldn't answer it. Because if you're going to say what matter is, you've got to describe it in terms of behavior. And that is to say in terms of form, in terms of pattern. You tell what it does. You describe the smallest shapes of it that you can see. Atoms, electrons, protons, mesons, all sorts of sub-nuclear particles. But you never, never arrive at the basic stuff. Because there isn't any. What happens is this. Stuff is a word for the world as it looks when our eyes are out of focus, fuzzy. Stuff, the idea of stuff is that it's undifferentiated, it's some kind of a goo. Hmm? And when your eyes are not in sharp focus, everything looks fuzzy. When you get your eyes into focus, you see a form, you see a pattern. And so all that we can talk about is patterns. So the picture of the world in the most sophisticated physics of today is not formed stuff, potted clay, but pattern. A self-moving, self-designing pattern, a dance. And we haven't yet, our common sense as individuals hasn't yet caught up with this. Well now, in the course of time, in the evolution of Western thought, the ceramic image of the world ran into trouble and changed into what I call the fully automatic model or image of the world. In other words, Western science was based on the idea that there are laws of nature. And it got that idea from Judaism and Christianity and Islam. That, in other words, the potter, the maker of the world, in the beginning of things, laid down the laws. And the, the law of God, which is also the law of nature, is called the Logos. And uh, in Christianity, the Logos is the second person of the Trinity, incarnate as Jesus Christ, who thereby is the perfect exemplar of the divine law. So we have tended to think of all natural phenomena as responding to laws, as if, in other words, the laws of the world were like the rails on which a streetcar or a tram or a train runs, and these things exist in a certain way, and all events respond to these laws. You know that limerick, there was a young man who said, damn, 
for it certainly seems that I am a creature that moves in determinate grooves. I'm not even a bus, I'm a tram. <laughs> so, here's this idea that there's a kind of a plan and everything responds and obeys that plan. Well, in the 18th century, Western intellectuals began to suspect this idea. And what they suspected is whether there is a lawmaker, whether there is an architect of the universe. And they found out, or they reasoned, that you don't have to suppose that there is. Why? Because the hypothesis of God does not help us to make any predictions. In other words, let's put it this way. If the business of science is to make predictions about what's going to happen, science is essentially prophecy. What's going to happen? By studying the behavior of the past and describing it carefully, we can make predictions about what's going to happen in the future. That's really the whole of science. And to do this, and to make successful predictions, you do not need God as a hypothesis, because it makes no difference to anything. If you say everything is controlled by God, everything is governed by God, that doesn't make any difference to your prediction of what's going to happen. And so what they did was simply drop that hypothesis. But they kept the hypothesis of law. Because if you can predict, if you can study the past and describe how things have behaved, and you've got some regularities in the behavior of the universe, you call that law. Although it may not be law in the ordinary sense of the word, it's simply regularity. And so they, what they did was they got rid of the lawmaker and kept the law. And so they conceived the universe in terms of a mechanism. Something, in other words, that is functioning according to regular clock-like mechanical principles. Newton's whole image of the world is based on billiards. The atoms are billiard balls, and they bang each other around. And so your behavior, you, every, every individual therefore is defined as a very, very complex arrangement of billiard balls, being banged around by everything else. And so behind the fully automatic model of the universe is the notion that reality itself is, to use the favorite term of 19th century scientists, blind energy. In, say, the metaphysics of Ernst Haeckel and T.H. Huxley, the world is basically nothing but blind, unintelligent force. And likewise, in parallel to this, in the philosophy of Freud, the basic psychological energy is libido, which is blind lust. And it is only a fluke, it is only as a result of uh, pure chances that resulting from the exuberance of this energy, there are people with values, with reason, with languages, with cultures, and with love. Just a fluke. Like, you know, 1,000 monkeys typing 1,000 typewriters for a million years 
will eventually type the Encyclopedia Britannica. And, of course, the moment they stop typing the Encyclopedia Britannica, they will relapse into nonsense. And so in order that that shall not happen, because you and I are flukes in this cosmos, and we like our way of life, we like being human, if we want to keep it, say these people, we've got to fight nature, because it will turn us back into nonsense the moment we let it. And so we've got to impose our will upon this world as if we were something completely alien to it from outside. And so we get a culture based on the idea of the war between man and nature. And we talk about the conquest of space, the conquest of Everest, and the great symbols of our culture are the rocket and the bulldozer. The rocket, you know, compensation for the sexually inadequate male. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to conquer space. You know, we're in space already, way out. If anybody cared to be sensitive and let what's outside space come to you, you can if your eyes are clear enough. Aided by telescopes, aided by uh, radio astronomy, aided by all the kind of sensitive instruments we can devise. We are as far out in space as we're ever going to get. But, uh, you know, sensitivity isn't the pitch. In, in the, especially in the WASP culture of the United States, we define manliness in terms of aggression. You see, because we are not, we're a little bit frightened as to whether we are really men. And so we put on this great show of being a tough guy. Uh, it's completely unnecessary. Uh, it, it, you know, if you have what it takes, you don't need to put on that show. You don't need to beat nature into submission. Why be hostile to nature? Because after all, you are a symptom of nature. You, as a human being, you grow out of this physical universe in just exactly the same way that an apple grows off an apple tree. So let's say the tree which grows apples is a tree which apples, using apple as a verb. And a world in which human beings arrive is a world that peoples. And so the existence of people is symptomatic of the kind of universe we live in. Just as spots on somebody's skin are symptomatic of chickenpox. But we have been brought up by reason of our two great myths, the ceramic and the fully automatic. Not to feel that we belong in the world. So our popular speech reflects it. We say, I came into this world. You didn't. You came out of it. We say, face facts. We talk about encounters with reality, as if it was a head-on meeting of completely alien agencies. And the average person has the sensation that he is a somewhat that exists inside a bag of skin, a center of consciousness, which looks out at this thing and what the hell is it going to do to me? You see? Uh, I recognize you. You kind of look like me. And uh, I've seen myself in a mirror. And uh, you look like you might be people. <laughs> So maybe you're intelligent, maybe you can love too. And uh, may, perhaps you're all right. Some of you are anyway, if you 
you've got the right color of skin or you have the right religion or whatever it is, you're okay. But there are all those people over in Asia, Africa, and they may not really be people. When you want to destroy someone, you always define them as unpeople, not really human. Monkeys may be, idiots may be, machines may be, but not people. But we have this hostility to the external world because of the superstition, the myth, the absolutely unfounded theory that you yourself exist only inside your skin. Now, I want to propose another idea altogether. And other astronomers either say there was a primordial explosion, an enormous bang millions of years ago, billions of years ago, which flung all the galaxies into space. Well, let's take that just for the sake of argument and say that was the way it happened. It's like uh, you took a bottle of ink and you threw it at a wall. <laughs> Smash, and all that ink spreads. And in the middle, it's dense, isn't it? And as it gets out on the edge, the little droplets are finer and finer and make more complicated patterns. See? So in the same way, there was a big bang in the beginning of things and it spread. And you and I, sitting here in this room, as complicated human beings, are way, way out on the fringe of that bang. We are the complicated little patterns on the end of it. Very interesting. But so we define ourselves as being only that. If you think that you are only inside your skin, you define yourself as one very complicated little curlicue, way out on the edge of that explosion, way out in space and way out in time. Billions of years ago, you were a big bang. But now you're a complicated human being. And we, then we cut ourselves off <coughs> like this and don't feel that we're still the big bang. But you are. Depends how you define yourself. You are actually, if, if this is the way things started, if there was a big bang in the beginning, you're not something that is a result of the Big Bang on the end of the process. You are still the process. You are the Big Bang, the original force of the universe coming on as whoever you are. See, when I meet you, I see not just what you define yourself as, Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so. I see every one of you as the primordial energy of the universe coming on at me in this particular way. I know I'm that too, but we've learned to define ourselves as separate from it. And so what I would call a kind of a basic problem we've got to go through first is to understand that there are no such things as things, that is to say separate things or separate events, that that is only a way of talking. And if you can understand this, you're going to have no further problems. <laughs> I once asked a group of high school children, what do you mean by a thing? And first of all, they gave me all sorts of synonyms. They said, it's an object, which is simply another word for a thing. It doesn't tell you anything about what you mean by a thing. And finally, a very smart girl from Italy who was in the group said, a thing is a noun. And she was quite right. A noun isn't a part of nature, it's a part of speech. 
There are no nouns in the physical world. There are no separate things in the physical world either. See, the physical world is wiggly. The clouds, mountains, trees, people are all wiggly. And uh, only when human beings get working at things, they build buildings in straight lines and try and make out that the world isn't really wiggly. But here are we sitting in this room, all built on straight lines, but each one of us is as wiggly as all get out. <laughs> now then, when you uh, want to get control of something that wiggles, it's pretty difficult, isn't it? You try and pick up a fish in your hands and the fish is wiggly and it slips out. What do you do to get hold of the fish? You use a net. And so the, the net is the basic thing we have for getting hold of the wiggly world. And so if you want to get hold of this wiggle, you've got to put a net over it. And I can number the holes in a net. So many so holes up, so many holes across. And if I can number these holes, I can count exactly where each wiggle is in terms of a hole in that net. And that's the beginning of calculus, the art of measuring the world. But in order to do that, I've got to break up the wiggle into bits. And I've got to call this a specific bit, and this the next bit of the wiggle, and this the next bit, and this the next bit of the wiggle. And so these bits are things or events. Bits of wiggles, which I mark out in order to talk about the wiggle, in order to measure it, and therefore in order to control it. But in nature, in fact, in the physical world, the wiggle isn't bitted. Like you don't get a cut-up fryer out of an egg. <laughs> but you have to cut the chicken up in order to eat it. You bite it. But it doesn't come bitten. So the world doesn't come thinged. It doesn't come evented. You and I are all as much continuous with the physical universe as a wave is continuous with the ocean. The ocean waves and the universe peoples. And as the wave, I wave at you and say, you, the world is waving at me with you and saying, uh, hi, I'm here. But we are consciousness are the way we feel and sense our existence. Being based on a myth that we are made, that we are parts, that we are things, our consciousness has been influenced so that each one of us does not feel that. We feel we have been hypnotized, literally hypnotized, by social convention into feeling and sensing that we exist only inside our skins, that we are not the original bang, but just something out on the end of it. And therefore we are scared stiff. Because my wave is going to disappear. And I'm going to die. And that would be awful. We've got a mythology going now, which as uh, Father Maskell put it, we are nothing but something that happens between the maternity ward and the crematorium. <laughs> and that's it. And therefore everybody feels unhappy and miserable. Now, this is what people really believe today. You may go to church, you may say you believe in this, that, and the other, but you don't. Even Jehovah's Witnesses, who are the most fundamentalist fundamentalists, they are polite when they come round and knock at the door. <laughs> but if you really believed in Christianity, you would be screaming in the streets. But nobody does.
you'd be taking full-page ads in the paper every day. You'd have the most terrifying television programs. The churches would be going out of their minds if they really believe what they teach, but they don't. They think they ought to believe what they teach. They believe they should believe, but they don't believe it because what we really believe is the fully automatic model. And that is our basic plausible common sense. You are a fluke. You are a separate event. And you run from the maternity ward to the crematorium and that's it, baby. That's it. Now, why does anybody think that way? There's no reason to, because it isn't even scientific. It's just a myth. And it's invented by people who wanted to feel a certain way. They want to play a certain game. See, the game of God got, got embarrassing. The, the idea of God as the potter, the architect of the universe, is, is, is good. And, it makes you feel that life is, after all, important. There is someone who cares. It has meaning, it has sense, and you are valuable in the eyes of the Father. But after a while, it gets embarrassing. When you realize that everything you do is being watched by God. <laughs> he knows your tiniest, inmost feelings and thoughts, and you say after a while, Quit bugging me. <laughs> I don't want you around. So you become an atheist just to get rid of it. Then, then you feel terrible after that because you got rid of God, but that means you got rid of yourself. You're just nothing but a machine. And your idea that you're a machine is just a machine too. So if you're a smart kid, you commit suicide. Camus said there is only really one serious philosophical question, which is whether or not to commit suicide. I think there are four or five serious philosophical questions. The first one is, who started it? The second is, are we going to make it? The third is, where are we going to put it? The fourth is, who's going to clean up? And the fifth, is it serious? <laughs> But, but still, uh, should you or not commit suicide? This is a good question. Why go on? And you only go on if the game is worth the candle. Now, the universe has been going on for an incredible long time. And so, really, a, a satisfactory theory of the universe has to be one that's worth betting on. That's a very, it seems to me, absolutely elementary common sense. If you make a theory of the universe which isn't worth betting on, why bother? Just commit suicide. But if you want to go on playing the game, you've got to have an optimal theory for playing the game. Otherwise, there's no point in it. But the people who coined the fully automatic theory of the universe were playing a very funny game. What they wanted to say was this, all you people who believe in religion are old ladies and wishful thinkers. You've got a big daddy up there and you want a comfort and thing, but life is rough. Life is tough and uh, success goes to the most hard-headed people. That was a very convenient theory when the European-American world was colonizing the natives everywhere else. They said, we are the end product of evolution. 
and uh, we're tough, see. I'm a big strong guy because I face facts and life is just a bunch of junk and I'm going to impose my will on it and turn it into something else, you see. And I'm real hard. See, that's a way of flattering yourself. And so uh, it has become academically plausible and fashionable that this is the way the world works. In academic circles, no other theory of the world than the fully automatic model is respectable. Because if you're an academic person, you've got to be an intellectually tough person. You've got to be prickly. See, there are basically two kinds of philosophy. One's called prickles, the other's called goo. <laughs> and uh, prickly people are precise, rigorous, logical. They like everything chopped up and clear. Goo people like it vague. For example, in physics, prickly people believe that the ultimate constituents of matter are particles. Goo people believe it's waves. <laughs> and uh, in, in uh, <coughs> philosophy, prickly people are logical positivists and goo people are idealists. And they're always arguing with each other. But what they don't realize is that they, neither one can take his position without the other person. Because you wouldn't know you advocated prickles unless there was somebody else advocating goo. <laughs> you wouldn't know what a prickle was unless you knew what goo was. Because life is not either prickles or goo, it's gooey prickles and prickly goo. And they go together, like back and front, male and female. And that's the answer to philosophy. See, I'm a philosopher, and I'm not going to argue very much, because if you don't argue with me, I don't know what I think. So if we argue, I say thank you, because going to the courtesy of your taking a different point of view, I understand what I mean, so I can't get rid of you. But however, you see, this whole idea that the universe is just nothing at all but unintelligent force playing around and not even enjoying it is a put-down theory of the world. People who had a, an advantage to make a game to play by putting it down and making out that because they put the world down, they were a superior kind of people. So uh, that just won't do. Uh, we've had it because if, if you seriously go along with this idea of the world, you're what is technically called alienated. You feel hostile to the world. You feel that the world is a trap. It is a, a mechanism. It's electronic and neurological uh, mechanisms into which you somehow got caught. And you, poor thing, have to put up with being in a body that's falling apart and uh, that gets cancer, that gets uh, uh, the great Siberian itch, and uh, it's just terrible. And these mechanics, doctors, are trying to help you out, but they really can't succeed in the end. And you're just going to fall apart, and it's a grim business, and it's too bad. So if you think that that's the way things are, you may as well commit suicide right now. <laughs> Unless you say, well, I don't, because there really, after all, there might be eternal damnation <coughs> in the back of the thing if I did that. 
or uh, then I identify with my children or something, and I think of them going on and without me and uh, nobody to support them. But of course, if I do go on in this frame of mind and continue to support them, I shall merely teach them to be like I am. And they'll go on dragging it out to support their children, and they won't enjoy it, and they'll be afraid to commit suicide, and so will their children. They all learn the same lesson. So you see, all I'm trying to say is that the basic common sense about the nature of the world that is influencing most people in the United States today, the fully automatic model, is simply a myth. If you want to say that the idea of God the Father with his white beard on the golden throne is a myth, in the bad sense of the word myth, so is this other one. It's just as phony and has just as little to support it as being the true state of affairs. Why? And let's get this clear. If there is any such thing at all as intelligence and love, and beauty. Well, you found it in other people. In other words, it exists in us as human beings. And as I said, if it is there in us, it is symptomatic of the scheme of things. We are as symptomatic of the scheme of things as the apples are symptomatic of the apple tree or the rose of the rose bush. The earth is not a big rock infested with living organisms any more than your skeleton is bones infested with cells. The earth is geological, yes, but this geological entity grows people and our existence on the earth is a symptom of the solar system and its balances as much as the solar system in turn is a symptom of our galaxy and our galaxy in its turn is a symptom of the whole company of galaxies. Goodness only knows what that's in. But you see, when as a scientist you describe the behavior of a living organism you try to say what a person does. It's the only way in which you can describe what a person is. Describe what they do. Then you find out that in making this description, you cannot confine yourself to what happens inside the skin. In other words, you can't talk about a person walking unless you start describing the floor. Because when I walk, I don't just dangle my legs in empty space. I move in relationship to a room. And so in order to describe what I'm doing when I'm walking, I have to describe the room. I have to describe the territory. So in, in, in de describing my talking at the moment, I can't describe this just as a thing in itself because I'm talking to you. And so what I'm doing at the moment is not completely described unless your being here is described also. So if that is necessary, if in other words, in order to describe my behavior, I have to describe your behavior and the behavior of the environment, it means that we've really got one system of behavior. That what I am 
involves what you are. I don't know who I am unless I know who you are. And you don't know who you are unless you know who I am. There was a wise rabbi once said, if I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, then I am not I and you are not you. In other words, we are not separate. We define each other. We're all backs and fronts to each other. You know, uh, you can't, for example, have two sticks. You lean two sticks against each other and they stand up because they support each other. Take one away and the other falls. They interdepend. And so in exactly that way, we and our environment and all of us and each other are interdependent systems. We know who we are in terms of other people. We all lock together. And this is again and again the serious scientific description of how things happen. And any good scientist knows, therefore, that what you call the external world is as much you as your own body. Your skin doesn't separate you from the world, it's a bridge through which the external world flows into you and you flow into it. Just, for example, as a whirlpool in water, you could say because you have a skin, you have a definite shape, you have a definite form, all right? Here is a, a flow of water and it suddenly it does a whirlpool and then it goes on. The whirlpool is a definite form but no water stays put in it. The whirlpool is something the stream is doing. And exactly the same way, the whole universe is doing each one of us. And I see you today, and I recognize you tomorrow, just as I would recognize a whirlpool in a stream. I'd say, oh yes, I've seen that whirlpool before. It's just near so-and-so's house on the edge of the river, and it's always there. So in the same way, when I meet you tomorrow, I recognize you, you're the same whirlpool you were yesterday. But you're moving. The whole world is moving through you. All the cosmic rays, all the food you're eating, the stream of steaks and milk and uh, eggs and uh, uh, everything is just flowing right through you. When you're wiggling the same way, the world is wiggling, the stream is wiggling you. But the problem is, you see, we haven't been taught to feel that way. The myths underlying our culture and underlying our common sense have not taught us to feel identical with the universe, but only parts of it, only in it, only confronting it, aliens. And we are, I think, quite urgently in need of coming to feel that we are the eternal universe, each one of us. Otherwise, we're going to go out of our heads. We're going to commit suicide, collectively, with courtesy of H-bombs. And, uh, all right, supposing we do, well, that will be that, and there will be life making experiments on other galaxies. Maybe they'll find a better game. Out of Your Mind now continues with the next lecture from the Nature of Consciousness lecture series.
Well, now, I was discussing two of the great myths or models of the universe which lie in the intellectual and psychological background of all of us. The myth of the world as a political, monarchical state in which we are all here on sufferance as subjects of God, in which we are made artifacts who do not exist in our own right. God alone, in the first myth, exists in his own right. And you exist as a favor. And you ought to be grateful. It's like your parents come on and say to you, maybe, look at all the things we've done for you, all the money we spent to send you to college, and uh, you turn out to be a beatnik. And you're a wretched, ungrateful child. And you're supposed to uh, say, sorry, but um, I really am. But you're, you're definitely in the position of being on probation. So that, that idea of the royal God, the king of kings and the lord of lords, which we inherit from the political structures of the Tigris-Euphrates cultures and from Egypt, the pharaoh Amenhotep IV is probably as Freud suggested, the original author of Moses' monotheism. And the, certainly the Jewish law code comes from Hammurabi in Chaldea. And these men lived in a culture where the pyramid and the ziggurat, the ziggurat is a Chaldean version of the pyramid, indicating somehow a hierarchy of power from the boss all the way down. And God, in this first myth that we've been discussing, the ceramic myth, is the boss. And the idea of God is that the universe is governed from above. But you see, this parallels and goes hand in hand with the idea that you govern your own body. That the ego, which lies somewhere between the ears and behind the eyes in the brain, is the governor of the body. And so we can't understand an assist a system of order, a system of life in which there isn't a governor. O Lord, our governor, how excellent is thy name in all the world. But supposing, on the contrary, there could be a system which doesn't have a governor. That's what we are supposed to have in this society. We are supposed to be a democracy and a republic. And we are supposed to govern ourselves. And yet, as I said, it's so funny that Americans can be politically Republican, I don't mean Republican in the party sense, and yet religiously monarchical. It's a real strange contradiction.
So what is this universe? Is it a monarchy? Is it a republic? Is it a mechanism or an organism? Because you see, if it's a mechanism, either it's a, a mere mechanism, as in the fully automatic model, or else it's the mechanism under the control of a driver, a mechanic. If it's not that, it's an organism. And an organism is a thing that governs itself. In your body, there is no boss. You can say, you can argue, for example, that the brain is a gadget evolved by the stomach in order to serve the stomach for the purposes of getting food. Or you can argue that the stomach is a gadget evolved by the brain to feed it and keep it alive. Whose game is this? Is it the brain's game or the stomach's game? It doesn't make, actually, they, they are mutual. The brain implies the stomach, the stomach implies the brain, and neither of them is the boss. You know that story about all the limbs of the body? Said, uh, the hands said, we, we do all our work, the feet said, we do our work, the mouth said, we do all the chewing, and here's this lazy stomach who just gets it all and doesn't do a thing. He doesn't do any work, so let's go on strike. And the hands refused to carry, the feet refused to walk, the mouth refused to chew, and said, now, we're on strike against the stomach. But after a while, all of them found themselves getting weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker because they didn't recognize that the stomach fed them. So there is the possibility then that we are not in the kind of system that these two myths delineate, that we are not living in a world where we ourselves, in the deepest sense of, our, of self, are outside reality and somehow in a position that we have to bow down to it and say, as a great favor, please preserve us in existence. Nor are we in a system which is merely mechanical and in which we are nothing but flukes trapped in the electrical wiring of a nervous system which is fundamentally rather inefficiently arranged. What's the alternative? Well, we can put the alternative in another image altogether. And I will call this not the ceramic image, not the fully automatic image, but the dramatic image. Consider the world as a drama. What's the basis of all drama? The basis of all stories, of all plots, of all happenings. It's the game of hide and seek. You get a baby. What's the fundamental first game you play with a baby? You put a book in front of your face and you peek at the baby like this. The baby starts giggling because the baby is close to the origins of life. It comes from the womb, really knowing what it's all about, but it can't put it into words. See, what every child psychologist really wants to know is to get a baby to talk psychological jargon.
and explain how it feels. <laughs> but the baby knows. You do this and this, 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 and the baby starts laughing because the baby is a recent incarnation of God. And the baby knows, therefore, that hide-and-seek is the basic game. See, before, uh, when we were children, we were taught one, two, three, and A, B, C. But we weren't sat down on our mother's knees and taught the game of black and white. That's the thing that was left out of all our educations. That life is not a conflict between opposites, but a polarity. The difference between a conflict and a polarity is simply, when you say about opposite things, we sometimes use the expression, these two things are the poles apart. You say, for example, with someone with whom you totally disagree, I am the poles apart from this person. But your very saying that gives the show away. Poles. Poles are the opposite ends of one magnet. And if you take a magnet, there's a north pole and a south pole. All right, chop off the south pole. Move it away. The piece you've got left creates a new south pole. You never get rid of the south pole. Things may be the poles apart, but they go together. And you can't have the one without the other. That's the basic idea of polarity. But what we are trying to imagine is the encounter of forces that come from absolutely opposed realms that have nothing in common when we say of two personality types that they're the poles apart. We are trying to think eccentrically instead of concentrically. And so in this way, we haven't realized that life and death, black and white, good and evil, being and non-being, come from the same center. They imply each other so that you wouldn't know the one without the other. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad. That's fun. You are playing the game that you don't know that self and other go together in just the same way as the two poles of a magnet. So that when anybody in our culture says, uh, slips into the state of consciousness where they suddenly find this to be true and they come on and say, I'm God, we say you're insane. Now, it's very difficult. You, you can very easily slip into the state of consciousness where you feel you're God. It can happen to anyone. Just in the same way as you can get the flu or uh, measles or something like that, you can slip into the state of consciousness. When you get it, it depends upon your background and your training as to how you're going to interpret it. If you've got the idea of God that comes from popular Christianity. God as the governor, the political head of the world, and you think you're God, then you say to everybody, well, you should bow down and worship me. 
But if you're a member of Hindu culture and you suddenly tell all your friends I'm God, instead of saying you're insane, they say, congratulations, at last you found out. Because their idea of God is not the autocratic governor. When they uh, make images of Shiva, say, he has ten arms. How would you use ten arms? It's hard enough to use two. You know, if you play the organ, you've got to use your two feet and your two hands, and you play different rhythms with each member. It's kind of tricky. But actually, we're all masters at this, because how do you grow each hair without having to think about it? Each nerve. How do you beat your heart and digest with your stomach at the same time? You don't have to think about it. In your very body, you are omnipotent in the true sense of omnipotence, which is that you are able to be omnipotent. You are able to do all these things without having to think about it. When I was a child, I used to ask my mother, of course, all sorts of ridiculous questions that every child asks. And when she got bored with my question, she'd say, darling, there are some things we're just not meant to know. Well, I said, will we ever know? She said, yes, of course, when we die and go to heaven, every God will make everything plain. So I used to imagine that on wet afternoons in heaven, we'd all sit around the throne of grace and say to God, well, now, why did you do this and how did you do that? And he would explain it to us. <laughs> Heavenly Father, why are the leaves green? And he would say, because of the chlorophyll. And we'd say, oh. <laughs> but in the Hindu universe you would say to God how did you make the mountains and he would say well I just did it because what you're asking me for when you ask me how did I make the mountains you're asking me to describe in words how I made the mountains and there are no words which can do this. Words cannot tell you how I made the mountains any more than I can drink the ocean with a fork. A fork may be useful for sticking into a piece of something and eating it, but it won't, it is, is no use for, for, for imbibing the ocean. It would take millions of years. So it would take millions of years. In other words, you would be bored with my description long before I got through it, if I put it to you in words. Because I didn't create the mountains with words. I just did it. Like you, open and close your hand. You know how to do this, but can you describe in words how you do it? But you do it. You are conscious, aren't you? Do you know how you manage to be conscious? Do you know how you beat your heart? Can you say in words, explain correctly how this is done? You do it, but you can't put it into words, because words are too clumsy. And yet you manage this expertly for as long as you're able to do it. This concludes session one of Out of Your Mind, Essential Listening from the Alan Watts Audio Archives. Our program continues with session two. Presents Out of Your Mind Essential Listening 
from the Alan Watts Audio Archives, Session 2, The Nature of Consciousness, Part 2, with Alan Watts. We are playing a game, and the game runs like this. The only thing you really know is what you can put into words. Let's suppose I love some girl, rapturously. And somebody says to me, would you really love her? Well, how am I going to prove this? Well, I say, uh, write poetry. Tell us all how much you love her, then we'll believe you. So if I'm an artist and I can put this into words, and convince everybody that I've written the most ecstatic love letters ever written, they say, all right, okay, we, we'll admit it, you really do love her. But supposing you're not very articulate, are we going to tell you you don't love her? Surely not. You don't have to be Heloise and Abelard to be in love. So, the whole game that our culture is playing is that nothing really happens unless it's in the newspaper. So we're, when we are at a party, and there's a great party, somebody said, it's too bad there wasn't a tape recorder. And so our children begin to feel that they don't exist authentically unless they get their names in the papers. And the fastest way of getting your name in the papers is to commit a crime. And then you'll be photographed, then you'll appear in court, then everybody will notice you. It really happened if it was recorded. In other words, if you shout and there doesn't, doesn't come back an echo, it didn't happen. Well, that's a real hang-up. It's true, the fun with echoes. We all like singing in the bathtub because there's more resonance there. And when we play a musical instrument like a violin or a cello, it has a sounding box because that gives resonance to the sound. And in the same way, the cortex of the human brain enables us, when we are happy, to know that we are happy. And that gives a certain resonance to it. If you're happy and you don't know you're happy, there's nobody home. <laughs> but this is the whole problem for us. Several thousand years ago, human beings evolved the system of self-consciousness. And uh, they knew, they, they knew. There was a young man who said, though, it seems that I know that I know. What I would like to see is the I that knows me when I know that I know that I know. <laughs> you see? And, and this is uh, the human problem. We know that we know. And so there came a point in our evolution when we didn't guide life by distrusting our instincts and had to think about it, and had to purposely arrange and discipline and push our lives around in accordance with foresight and words and systems of symbols, accountancy, calculation, and so on. And then we worry. Once you start thinking about things, you worry as to whether you've thought enough. Did you really take all the details into consideration? Was every fact properly reviewed? And by Jove, the more you think about it, the more you realize that uh, you really couldn't take everything into consideration because all the variables in any human 
decision are incalculable. So you get anxiety. And this, though, also, this is the price you pay for knowing that you know, for being able to think about thinking, to feel about feeling. And so you're in this funny position. Now then, do you see that this is simultaneously an advantage and a terrible disadvantage? What has happened here is that by having a certain kind of consciousness, a certain kind of reflexive consciousness, being aware of being aware, being able to represent what goes on fundamentally in terms of a system of symbols, such as words, such as numbers. You put, as it were, two lives together at once, one representing the other. The symbols representing the reality. The money representing the wealth. And if you don't realize that the symbol is really secondary, it doesn't have the same value. You know, people go to the supermarket and they uh, get a whole cartload of goodies and they drive it through and then the clerk fixes up the counter and this long tape comes out and you say, $30 please. And everybody feels depressed because <laughs> they, they give away $30 worth of paper but they've got a cartload of goodies. They don't think about that. They think they just lost, lost $30. But you've got the real wealth in the card. All you parted with was the paper. Because the paper in our system becomes more valuable than the wealth. It represents power, potentiality. Whereas the wealth, you think, oh well, that's just necessary. You've got to eat. Well, I mean, that's to be really mixed up. So then, if you awaken from this illusion and you understand that black implies white, self implies other, life implies death, or shall I say, Death implies life. You can feel yourself not as a stranger in the world, not as something here on probation, not as something that has arrived here by fluke, but you can begin to feel your own existence as absolutely fundamental. what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. So, say in Hindu mythology, they say that the world is the drama of God. God is not something in Hindu mythology with a white beard that sits on a throne and that has royal prerogatives. 
God in, in Indian mythology is the self. Satchitananda, which means sat, that which is, chit, that which is consciousness, that which is ananda, is bliss. And in other words, re, the, the, what exists, reality itself, is gorgeous. It is the plenum, the fullness of total joy. Wow, we. And all those stars, if you look out in the sky, is a firework display like you see on the 4th of July, which is a great occasion for celebration. The universe is a celebration. It is a firework show to celebrate that existence is. Wow, we. And then they say, but however, there's no point just in sustaining bliss. Let's suppose that you were able every night to dream any dream you wanted to dream. And that you could, for example, have the power within one night to dream 75 years of time. Or any length of time you wanted to have. And you would naturally, as you began on this adventure of dreams, you would fulfill all your wishes. You would have every kind of pleasure you could conceive. And after several nights of 75 years of total pleasure each, you would say, well, that was pretty great. But now let's, um, let's have a surprise. Let's have a dream which isn't under control. Well, something is going to happen to me that I don't know what it's going to be. And uh, you, you would dig that and come out of that and say, wow, that was a, a close shave, wasn't it? And then you would get more and more adventurous and you would make further and further out gambles as to what you would dream. And finally, you would dream where you are now. You would dream the dream of living the life that you are actually living today. That would be within the infinite multiplicity of choices you would have, of playing that you weren't God. Because the whole nature of the Godhead, according to this idea, is to play that he's not. The first thing he says to himself is, man, get lost. Because he gives himself away. The nature of love is self-abandonment, not clinging to oneself. Throwing yourself out, as in, for example, in basketball, you're always getting rid of the ball. You say to the other fellow, have a ball. See? And uh, that, that keeps things moving. That's the nature of life. So in this idea, then, everybody is fundamentally the ultimate reality. Not God in a politically kingly sense, but God in the sense of being the self, the deep down basic whatever there is. And you're all that, only you're pretending you're not. And it's perfectly okay to pretend you're not, to be absolutely convinced, because this is the whole notion of drama. When you come into the theater, there is a proscenium arch and a stage, and down there is the audience. And everybody assumes their seats in the theater and uh, are going to see a comedy, a tragedy, a thriller, or whatever it is. And they all know, as they come in and pay their admissions, that what is going to happen on the stage is not for real. 
But the actors have a conspiracy against this because they're going to try and persuade the audience that what is happening on the stage is for real. They want to get everybody sitting on the edge of their chairs. They want to get you terrified or crying or laughing. Ab absolutely captivated by the drama. And if a skillful human actor can take in an audience and make people cry, think what the cosmic actor can do. Why, he can take himself in completely. He can play so much for real that he really believes it is. Like you sitting in this room, you think you're really here. Why, you've persuaded yourself that way. You've acted it so damn well that you know this is the real world. But you're playing it. because the audience and the actor is one. Because behind the stage, there's the green room. Off scene, obscene. Where the actors take off their masks. You know that the word person means mask? The persona, which is the mask worn by actors in Greco-Roman drama, because it has a megaphone-type mouth which throws the sound out in an open-air theater. So pair through sonar, what the sound comes through, that's the mask. How to be a real person, how to be a genuine fake. <laughs> a mask. So the dramatis personae at the beginning of a play is the list of masks that the actors will wear. And so in the course of forgetting that this, this life is a drama, the word for the role, the word for the mask, has come to mean who you are genuinely, the person, the proper person. Incidentally, the word parson is derived from the word person. <laughs> the person of the village, person around town, the parson. Funny. So anyway then, this is the drama. I'm not trying to sell you on this idea in the sense of converting you to it. I want you to play with it. I want you to think of its possibilities. I'm not trying to prove it. I'm just putting it forward as a possibility of life to think about. So then, this means that you're not victims of a scheme of things, of a mechanical world, or of an autocratic god. The life you're living is what you have put yourself into. Only you don't admit it, because you want to play the game that it's happened to you. In other words, I got mixed up in this world. My parents, I had a father who got hot pants over a girl, and she was my mother. And uh, because he got, the, he, was just a, he was just a horny old man, and as a result of that, I got born. And I blame him for it and say, well, that's your fault. You've got to look after me. And he says, I don't see why I should look after you. You're just a result. <laughs> and, but let's suppose we admit that I really wanted to get born and that I was the ugly gleam in my father's eye when he approached my mother. That was me. I was desire. And I deliberately got involved in this thing. Look at it that way instead. And that even if I got myself into an awful mess, and I got born with syphilis and the great Siberian itch and tuberculosis 
and uh, in a Nazi concentration camp. Nevertheless, this was a game which was a very far-out play. It was a kind of cosmic masochism. But I did it. Isn't that an optimal game rule for life? Because if you play life on the supposition that you're a helpless little puppet that got involved, or if you play it on the supposition that it's a, a frightful, serious risk and that we really ought to do something about it and uh, so on, it's a drag. <laughs> There's no point in going on living unless we make the assumption that the situation of life is optimal. That really and truly we are all in a state of total bliss and delight. But we are going to pretend we aren't just for kicks. You play non-bliss in order to be able to experience bliss. And you can go as far out as non-bliss as you want to go. And when you wake up, it'll be great. You know, you can slam yourself on the head with a hammer because it's so nice when you stop. And it makes you realize, you see, how, how great things are when you forget that that's the way it is. And that's just like black and white. You don't know black unless you know white. You don't know white unless you know black. This is simply fundamental. So then, here's the drama. My metaphysics, let me be perfectly frank with you, are that there is the central self. You can call it God. You can call it anything you like. And it's all of us. It's playing all the parts of all beings whatsoever everywhere and anywhere. And it's playing the game of hide-and-seek with itself. It gets lost, it gets involved in the farthest-out adventures, but in the end, it always wakes up and comes back to itself. And when you're ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. And uh, since you're all here and engaged in this sort of inquiry and listening to this sort of lecture, I assume that you're all on the process of waking up. Or else you're teasing yourselves with some kind of uh, flirtation with waking up, which you're not serious about. But I assume maybe you are not serious but sincere, that you are ready to wake up. So then, when you're in the way of waking up and finding out who you really are, you meet a character called a guru. As the Hindus say, this word, the teacher, the awakener. And what is the function of a guru? He's the man who looks at you in the eye and says, oh, come off it. <laughs> I know who you are. You know, you come to the guru and say, sir, I have a problem. I'm unhappy and I want to get one up on the universe or I want to become enlightened. I want spiritual wisdom. Ah, and the guru looks at you and says, Who are you? You know Sri Ramana Maharshi, that great Hindu sage of modern times? People used to come to him and say, Master, who was I in my last incarnation? As if that mattered. And he would say, Who is asking the question? And he'd look at you and say, basically, go right down to it. You're looking at me. You're looking out. 
and you're unaware of what's behind your eyes, go back in and find out who you are, where the question comes from, why you ask. And if you've looked at a photograph of that man, I have a gorgeous photograph of him. And you look in those, I walk by it every time I go out of the front door. And I look at those eyes and the humor in them, the lilting laugh that says, oh, come off it, man. <laughs> Shiva, I recognize you. When you come to my door and you say, I'm so-and-so, I say, ha ha, what a funny way God has come on today. <laughs> uh, there are all sorts of tricks, of course, that gurus play. They uh, say, well, we're going to put you through the mill. And the reason they do that is simply that you won't wake up until you feel you've paid a price for it. In other words, the sense of guilt that one has, or the sense of anxiety, is simply the way one experiences keeping the game of disguise going on. Do you see that? Supposing you say, I feel guilty. Christianity makes you feel guilty for existing. That somehow, the very fact that you exist is an affront. You are a fallen human being. I remember as a child when we went to the services of the church on Good Friday, they gave us each a colored postcard with Jesus crucified on it. And it said underneath, This have I done for thee. What doest thou for me? You know, you felt awful. You nailed that man to the cross. Because you eat steak, you have crucified Christ. Because you kill the bull. After all, you depend on it. Mithra. It's the same mystery. And what are you going to do about that? This have I done for thee. What doest thou for me? You feel awful that you just exist at all. But that sense, that sense of guilt is the veil across the sanctuary. Don't you dare come in. In order to, you know, in all mysteries, when you're going to be initiated, there's somebody saying, ah, 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 don't you come in. You've got to fulfill this requirement, this requirement, this requirement, this requirement, then we'll let you in. And so you go, you, you go through the mill. Why? Because this is, you're saying to yourself, I won't wake up until I feel I deserve it. I won't wake up until I've made it difficult for me to wake up. So I, I, I invent for myself an elaborate system of delaying my waking up. I put myself through this test and that test, and when I feel it's been sufficiently arduous, then I may at last admit to myself who I really am and draw aside the veil and realize that after all, when all is said and done, I am that I am, which is the name of God. And 
when it comes to it, that's really rather funny. They say in Zen, when you attain Satori, nothing is left to you at that moment but to have a good laugh. But naturally, uh, all masters, Zen masters, yoga masters, every kind of master, uh, puts up a barrier and says to you, He simply plays your own game. You know, we say anybody who goes to a psychiatrist ought to have his head examined. Because you, when you go to a psychiatrist, you define yourself as somebody who ought to have his head examined. Same way, uh, the Zen masters say anybody who studies Zen or comes to a Zen master ought to be given 30 blows with a stick. Because he was stupid enough to pose the question that he had a problem. But you're the problem. You, you put yourself in this situation. So it's a question fundamentally. Do you define yourself as a victim of the world or as the world? You can define yourself. You see, if you identify you with what you call the voluntary system of the nerves, and say, only that's me. And that's really a rather limited amount of my total performance, what I do voluntarily. Then you've defined yourself as the victim in the game. And so you are able to feel that life was a trap. Something else, whether it was God or whether it was fate or whether it was uh, the big mechanism, the system, imposed this on you. And you can say, poor little me. But you can equally well, and with just as much justification, define yourself not only as what you do voluntarily, but also what you do involuntarily. That's you too. Do you beat your heart or don't you? Or does it just happen to you? And if you define yourself as the works, then nobody's imposing on you. You're not a victim. You're doing it. Because you can't explain how you do it in words, because words are too clumsy. And it takes too long to say. You get bored with it. But actually, then you can say, with, with gusto, I am responsible for this life. Whether comedy or tragedy, I did it. And it seems to me that that is a basis for behavior and going on, which is more fundamentally joyous and profitable and uh, great than defining ourselves as miserable victims or sinners or what have you. Out of Your Mind now continues with the next lecture from the Nature of Consciousness lecture series. I was discussing an alternative myth to the ceramic and fully automatic models of the universe. I'll call the dramatic myth. The idea that life as we experience it is a big act. 
and that behind this big act is the player. And uh, the player, or the self, as it's called in Hindu philosophy, the Atman, is you. Only you are playing hide-and-seek, since that is the essential game that's going on. It's the game of games, it's the basis of all games, hide-and-seek. And so since you're playing hide-and-seek, you are deliberately, although you can't admit this, or won't admit it, you are deliberately forgetting who you really are, or what you really are, and the knowledge that your essential self is the foundation of the universe, the ground of being, as Tillich calls it, is something you have as what the Germans call a Hintergedanke. A Hintergedanke is a thought way, way, way in the back of your mind, way back here somewhere. Something that you know deep down, but uh, can't admit. So, in a way then, in, in order to bring this to the front, in order to know that that is the case, you have to be kitted out of your game. You see, the problem is this. We identify in our experience a differentiation between what we do and what happens to us. We have a certain number of actions that we define as voluntary, and we feel in control of those. And then over against that, there is uh, all those things that are involuntary. But the dividing line between these two is very arbitrary. Because, for example, when you uh, move your hand, you feel that you decide whether to open it or to close it. But then ask yourself, how do you decide? When you decide to open your hand, do you first decide to decide? You don't, do you? You just decide, and how do you do that? And if you don't know how you do it, is it voluntary or involuntary? Let's consider breathing. You can feel that you breathe deliberately. You can control your breath. But when you don't think about it, it goes on. Is it voluntary or involuntary? And so we come to have a very arbitrary definition of self. That much of my activity which I feel I do. And that then doesn't include breathing most of the time. It doesn't include the heartbeats. It doesn't include uh, the activity of the glands. It doesn't include digestion. It doesn't include how you shape your bones, circulate your blood. Do you or do you not do these things? Now, if you get with yourself <clears throat> and you find out that you are all of yourself, a very strange thing happens. You find that your body knows that you are one with the universe. In other words, that the so-called involuntary circulation of your blood is one continuous process with the stars shining. If you find out that it's you who circulates your blood, you will at the same moment find out that you are shining the sun. 
because your physical organism is one continuous process with everything else that's going on. Just as the waves are continuous with the ocean, your body is continuous with the total energy system of the cosmos, and it's all you. Only you're playing the game that you're only this bit of it. But as I tried to explain, there are in physical reality no such things as separate events. So then, remember also when I tried to work towards a definition of omnipotence. Omnipotence is not knowing how everything is done, it's just doing it. You don't have to translate it into language. Look, supposing when you got up in the morning you had to switch your brain on. And you had to think and do as a deliberate process, waking up all the circuits that you need for active life during the day. Why, you'd never get done. Because you have to do all those things at once. How can a centipede control a hundred legs at once? Because it doesn't think about it. And so in the same way, you are unconsciously performing all the various activities of your organism. Only unconsciously isn't a good word because it sounds sort of dead. Superconsciously would be better. Give it a plus rather than a minus. Because what a consciousness is, is simply a sort of specialized form of awareness. When you uh, look around the room, you are conscious of as much as you can notice. And you see an enormous number of things which you don't notice. If, for example, I look at a girl here and somebody asks me later, what was she wearing? I may not know, although I've seen, because I didn't attend. But I was aware, you see. And perhaps if I could, uh, under hypnosis, be asked this question, where I would get my conscious attention out of the way be through being in the hypnotic state, I could recall what dress she was wearing. So then, just in the same way as you don't focus your attention on how you make your thyroid gland function, so in the same way you don't have any attention focused on how you shine the sun. So then, let me connect this with the problem of birth and death which puzzles people enormously, of course. Because in order to understand what, what the self is, you have to remember that it doesn't need to remember anything. Just like you don't need to know how you work your thyroid gland. So then, when you die, you're not going to have to put up with everlasting non-existence, because that's not an experience. A lot of people are afraid that when they die, they're going to be locked up in a dark room forever and, and sort of undergo that. But one of the most interesting things in the world, this is a yoga, this is a way of realization. Try and imagine what it will be like to go to sleep and never wake up. Think about that. Children think about it. It's one of the great wonders of life. What will it be like 
to go to sleep and never wake up. And if you think long enough about that, something will happen to you. You will find out, among other things, that uh, it will pose the next question to you. What was it like to wake up after having never gone to sleep? That was when you were born. You see, you, you can't have an experience of nothing. Nature abhors a vacuum. So after you're dead, the only thing that can happen is the same experience, or the same sort of experience, as when you were born. In other words, we all know very well that after people die, other people are born. And they're all you. Only you can only experience it one at a time. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. You know that very well. Only you don't have to remember the past in the same way you don't have to think about how you work your thyroid gland or whatever else it is in your organism. You don't have to know how to shine the sun. You just do it. Like you breathe. Isn't it, doesn't it really astonish you that you are this fantastically complex thing? And that you're doing all of this and you never had any education in how to do it? You never learned, but you're this miracle? Well, the point is that from a strictly physical, scientific standpoint, this organism is a continuous energy with everything else that's going on. And if I am my foot, I am the sun. Only we've got this little partial view, we've got the idea that no, I'm just something in this body, the ego. That's a joke. The ego is nothing other than the focus of conscious attention. It's like a radar on a ship. The radar on a ship is a troubleshooter. Is there anything in the way? And conscious attention is a designed function of the brain to scan the environment, like a radar does. And note for any troublemaking changes. But if you identify yourself with your troubleshooter, then naturally you define yourself as being in a perpetual state of anxiety. <coughs> and the moment we cease to identify with the ego and become aware that we are the whole organism, you realize the, as the first thing how harmonious it all is. Because your organism is a miracle of harmony. All this thing functioning together. Even those corpuscles and... Uh, creatures that are fighting each other in the bloodstream and eating each other up. If they weren't doing that, you wouldn't be healthy. So what is discord at one level of your being is harmony at a higher level. And you begin to realize that and you begin to be aware too that the discords of your life and the discords of people's life, which are a fight at one level, at a higher level of the universe, are healthy and harmonious. And you suddenly realize that everything that you are and do is at that level as magnificent and as free of any blemish as the patterns in waves, the markings in marble, the way a cat moves, 
and that this world is really okay. It can't be anything else because otherwise it couldn't exist. But the reality underneath physical existence, or which really is physical existence, because in my philosophy there's no difference between the physical and the spiritual. These are absolutely out-of-date categories. It's all process. It isn't stuff on the one hand and form on the other. It's just, it is pattern. Life is pattern. It is a dance of energy. So I will never invoke spooky knowledge. Uh, that is to say that I've had a private revelation or that I have sensory vibrations going on a plane which you don't have. Everything is standing right out in the open. And it's just a question of how you look at it. So you do discover when you realize this the most extraordinary thing to me that I never cease to be flabbergasted at whenever it happens to me. Some people will use a symbolism of the relationship of God to the universe wherein God is, say, brilliant light only somehow veiled hiding underneath all these forms that you see as you look around you. So far, so good. But the truth is funnier than that. It is that you are looking right at the brilliant light now. That the experience you are having, which you call ordinary everyday consciousness, pretending you're not it, that experience is exactly the same thing as it. There's no difference at all. And when you find that out, you laugh yourself silly. <laughs> That's the great discovery. In other words, when you really start to see things and you look at an old paper cup and you go into the nature of what it is to see, what vision is, or what smell is, or what touches, you realize that that vision of the paper cup is the brilliant light of the cosmos. Nothing could be brighter. 10,000 suns couldn't be brighter. Only they're hidden in the sense that all the points of the infinite light are so tiny when you see them in the cup. They don't blow your eyes out. But it is actually, see, the source of all light is in the eye. If there were no eyes in this world, the sun would not be light. You evoke light out of the universe. In the same way, you, by virtue of having a soft skin, evoke hardness out of wood. Wood is only hard in relation to a soft skin. It's your eardrum that evokes noise out of the air. You, by being this organism, call into being the whole universe of light and color and hardness and heaviness and everything, you see? Uh, but in, in the mythology that we've sold ourselves on during the end of the 19th century, when people discovered how big the universe was, and that we live on a little planet in a solar system on the edge of a galaxy, which is a minor galaxy, everybody thought, ah, oh, we're really unimportant after all. God isn't there and doesn't love us, and nature doesn't give a damn. And uh, we put ourselves down, you see. But actually, it's this little funny microbe tiny thing crawling on this little planet 
that's way out somewhere, who has the ingenuity, by nature of this magnificent organic structure, to evoke the whole universe out of what would otherwise be mere quanta. There's jazz going on. But you see, this little, little ingenious organism is not merely some stranger in this. This little organism on this little planet is what the whole show is growing there and so realizing its own presence. Well, now here's the problem. If this is the state of affairs, which is so, and if the, the consciousness state you are in at this moment is the same thing as what we might call the divine state, if you do anything to make it different, it shows you don't understand that it's so. So the moment you start practicing yoga, or praying, or meditating, or indulging in some sort of spiritual cultivation, you are getting in your own way. The Buddha said, we suffer because we desire. If you can give up desire, you won't suffer. But he didn't say that as the last word. He said that as the opening step of a dialogue. Because the, if, he, if you say that to someone, they're going to come back after a while and say, yes, but I'm now desiring not to desire. <laughs> and so the Buddha will answer, well, at last you're beginning to understand the point. Because you can't give up desire. Why would you try to do that? It's already desire. So in the same way, you say, uh, you ought to be unselfish or to give up your ego. Let go, relax. Why do you want to do that? Just because it's another way of beating the game, isn't it? But the moment you see you hypothesize that you are different from the universe, you want to get one up on it. But if you try to get one up on the universe and you're in competition with it, it means you don't understand you are it. You think there's a real difference between self and other. But self, what you call yourself and what you call other, are mutually necessary to each other, like back and front. They're really one. But just as a magnet polarizes itself in north and south, but it's all one magnet, so experience polarizes itself as self and other, but it's all one. So if you try to make the North Pole get the mastery of it, or the South Pole get the mastery of the North Pole, you show you don't know what's going on. A guru or teacher who wants to get this across to somebody, because he knows it himself, and when you know it, you know, you like others to see it too. So what he does is he gets you into being ridiculous harder and more assiduously than usual. In other words, if you are in a contest with the universe, he's going to stir up that contest until it becomes ridiculous. And so he sets you such tasks as saying, now of course, in order to be a true person, you must give up yourself. Be unselfish. So the Lord sits, uh, steps down out of heaven and says, the first and great commandment is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. You must love me. Well, that's a double bind. You can't love on purpose. You can't be 
sincere, purposely. It's like trying not to think of a green elephant while taking medicine. <laughs> but if a person really tries to do it, so, you know, this is the way Christianity is rigged, you should be very sorry for your sins. And though everybody knows they're not, but they think they ought to be, and so they go around trying to be penitent or trying to be humble. And they know the more assiduously they practice it, the phonier and phonier the whole thing gets. And so in this way, it's, a, what, it's called a, the technique of reductio ad absurdum. If you think you have a problem, you see, and that you're an ego and that you're in difficulty, the answer that the Zen master makes to you is, show me your ego. I want to see this thing that has a problem. When Bodhidharma, the legendary founder of Zen, came to China, a disciple came to him and said, I have no peace of mind. Please pacify my mind. And Bodhidharma said, bring out your mind here before me and I'll pacify it. Well, he said, when I look for it, I can't find it. So Bodhidharma said, there, it's pacified. See, because when you look for your own mind, that is to say your own particularized center of being, which is separate from everything else, you won't be able to find it. But the only way you'll know it isn't there is if you look for it hard enough to find out that it isn't there. And so everybody says, all right, know yourself, look within, find out who you are. Because the harder you look, you won't be able to find it. And then you'll realize that it isn't there at all. There isn't a separate you. Your mind is what there is. Everything. But the only way to find that out is to persist in the state of delusion as hard as possible. That's one way. I don't say the only way, but it is one way. And so almost all spiritual disciplines, meditations, prayers, etc., etc., are ways of persisting in folly, doing resolutely and consistently what you're doing already. So if a person believes that the earth is flat, you can't talk him out of that. He knows it's flat. Look out of the window and see it. Obviously it looks flat. So the only way to convince him that it isn't is to say, well, let's go and find the edge. And in order to find the edge, you've got to be very careful not to walk in circles. You'll never find it that way. So we've got to go consistently in a straight line, due west, along the same line of latitude. And eventually, when we get back to where we started from, you've convinced the guy that the earth is round. But that's the, that's the only way that will teach him. Because people can't be talked out of illusions. Well, now, there is another possibility, however. But this is more difficult to describe. Let's say uh, we, we take as the basic supposition, which is the thing that one sees in the experience of satori or, or awakening or whatever you want to call it, that this now moment in which I'm talking and you're listening is eternity. That although we have somehow conned ourselves into the notion that this moment is rather ordinary and that we may not feel very well and that uh, we're sort of vaguely frustrated and worried and so on and that it ought to be changed. 
This is it. So you don't need to do anything at all. But the difficulty about explaining that is that don't, you, you mustn't try not to do anything, because that's doing something. And how to explain that? Because there's nothing to explain. It's the, it, it, it is the way it is now, you see. And if you understand that, it will automatically wake you up. That's why Zen teachers use shock treatment to uh, sometimes while they hit people or shout at them or cre create a sudden surprise. Because it is that jolt that <coughs> suddenly brings you here. See, there's no road to here because you're already there. And if you ask me, how am I going to get here? It'll be like the famous story of the American tourist in England who asked some yokel the way to Upper Tuddenham, a little village. And the yokel scratched his head and he said, Well, sir, I do know where it is, but if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> <laughs> So, you see, when you ask, how do I attain the knowledge of God? How do I attain nirvana, liberation? All I can say is it's the wrong question. Why do you want to attain it? Because the very fact that you're wanting to attain it is the only thing that prevents you from getting there. You already have it. But, of course, uh, it's, it's up to you. It's your privilege to pretend that you don't. That's your game. That's your life game. That's what makes you think you're an ego. And uh, when you want to wake up, you will. Just like that. If you're not awake, it shows you don't want to. You're, you're still playing the hide part of the game. You're still, as it were, the, the, the self, pretending it's not the self. And that's what you want to do. So you see, in that way too, you're already there. When you understand this, a funny thing happens. And some people uh, misinterpret it. You will discover, as this happens, that the distinction between voluntary and involuntary behavior disappears. You will realize that what you describe as things under your own will feel exactly the same as things going on outside you. You watch other people moving, and you know you're doing that. Just like you're breathing, or circulating your blood. If you don't understand what's going on, you're liable to get crazy at this point, and to feel that you are God in the Jehovah sense. To say that you actually have power over other people, so that you could alter what they're doing and that you are omnipotent in a very crude, literal kind of Bible sense, you see? And uh, a lot of people feel that and they go crazy. They have to put them away. They think they're Jesus Christ and that everybody ought to fall down and worship. That's only they got their wires crossed. They haven't been able to... This experience happened to them, but they don't know how to interpret it. So be careful of that. Jung calls it inflation people who get the holy man syndrome 
that uh, I've suddenly discovered that I'm the Lord and that I'm above good and evil and so on, and that, that uh, therefore I start giving myself airs and graces. But the point is everybody else is too. If you discover that you're that, then you ought to know that everybody else is. Well, for example, let, let's see how in, in other ways you might realize this. Most people think when they open their eyes and look around that what they are seeing is outside. It seems, doesn't it, that you are behind your eyes and that behind the eyes there is a blank which you can't see at all. Turn around and you see something else in front of you. But behind the eyes there seems to be something that has no color. It isn't dark, it isn't light, it's just uh, it's there from a tactile standpoint. You can feel it with your fingers, although you don't get inside it. But what is that behind your eyes, you see? Well, actually, when you look out there and see all these people and, and things sitting around, that's how it feels inside your head. The color of this room is back here in the nervous system, where the optical nerves are at the back of the head. It's in there. It's what you're experiencing. What you see out here is a neurological experience. Now, if that hits you, and you feel sensuously that that's so, you may think that then, then therefore, the external world is all inside my skull. But you've got to correct that with the thought that your skull is also in the external world. So you suddenly begin to feel, well, Wow, what a kind of a situation is this? It's inside me, and I'm inside it, and it's inside me, and I'm inside it. But that's the way it is. This is the, what you could call, transaction, rather than interaction, between the individual and the world. Just like, for example, in buying and selling, there cannot be an act of buying unless there's simultaneously an act of selling, and vice versa. So the relationship between the organism and the environment is transactional. The environment grows the organism, and in turn, the organism creates the environment. The organism turns the sun into light, but it requires there to be an environment containing a sun for there to be an organism at all. And the answer to it is simply, they're all one process. And... Uh, <clears throat> It isn't that organisms by chance came into this world. Put it rather that this world is the sort of environment which grows organisms. It was that way from the beginning. Just in the same way for, I mean, the organisms may in time have arrived in the scene or out of the scene later than the beginning of the scene. But from the moment it went bang in the beginning, that's the way it started. Organisms like us, us sitting here, were involved in it. You see, look here, let's take the, the propagation of an electric current. I can have a, an electric current running through a wire that goes all the way around the earth. And uh, here we have our power source, and here we have a switch. All right. Here's the positive pole, here's the negative pole. Now, 
before that switch closes, there is, the current doesn't exactly behave like water in a pipe. There isn't current here waiting to jump the gap as soon as the switch is closed. The current doesn't even start until the switch is closed from the positive pole. It never starts unless the point of arrival is there. Now, it'll take an interval for that current to get going and uh, circuit if it's going all the way around the Earth. It's a long run. But the, but the finishing point has to be closed before it will even start from the beginning. In a similar way, although uh, in, in the development of any physical system, there may be billions of years between the creation of the most primitive form of energy and then the arrival of intelligent life. That billions of years is just the same thing as the trip of the current around the wire. It takes a little time. But it's already implied. It takes time for an acorn to turn into an oak. But the oak is already implied in the acorn. And so in any lump of rock floating about in space, there is implicit human intelligence. Sometimes. Somehow, somewhere. They all go together. So don't differentiate yourself and stand off against this and say, I am a living organism in a world made of a lot of dead junk, rocks and stuff. It all goes together. Those rocks are just as much you as your fingernails. You need rocks. What are you going to stand on? What I think, you know, awakening really involves is a re-examination of our common sense. We've got all sorts of ideas built into us which seem unquestioned, obvious. And our speech reflects them. The commonest phrases. Face the facts. As if they were outside you. As if uh, life was something you simply encountered as a foreigner. Face the facts. Our common sense has been rigged, you see, so that we feel strangers and aliens in this world and this is terribly plausible simply because it's what we're used to that's the only reason but when you really start questioning this say is that the way I have to assume life is I know everybody does but does that make it true it doesn't necessarily it ain't necessarily so. And so then, you, as, as you question this basic assumption that underlies our culture, uh, you find you get a new kind of common sense. It becomes absolutely obvious to you that you are continuous with the universe. For example, people used to believe that the people who lived in the Antipodes would fall off. And that was scary. 
but then when somebody sailed around the world, and we all got used to it, and now we, we travel around in jet planes and everything, we have no problem about feeling that the earth is globular. None whatever. We got used to it. So in the same way, Einstein's relativity theories, the curvature of the propagation of light, that began to bother people when Einstein started talking like that. But now we're all used to it. Well, in a few years, it will be a matter of common sense to very many people that they're one with the universe. It'll be so simple. And then maybe, if that happens, we shall be in a position to handle our technology with more sense. With love instead of with hate for our environment. This concludes Session 2 of Out of Your Mind, Essential Listening, from the Alan Watts Audio Archives. Our program continues with Session 3. True presents Out of Your Mind, Essential Listening from the Alan Watts Audio Archives, Session 3, The Web of Life with Alan Watts. The Web of Life. Let me try from the first to indicate the point that we're aiming at. The point is this, that human consciousness is at the same time as being a form of awareness and sensitivity and understanding, it's also a form of ignorance. The ordinary, everyday consciousness that we have leaves out more than it takes in. And because of this, it leaves out things that are terribly important. It leaves out things that would, if we did know them, allay our anxieties and fears and horrors and if we could extend our awareness, you see, to include those things that we leave out, we would have a deep interior peace. Because we would all know the one thing that you mustn't know, you know, according to the rules of our particular social game, the one thing you mustn't know that's really not allowed that is the lowdown on life. And then the lowdown on the one hand means the real dirt on things. But the lowdown is also what is profound, what is mysterious, what is in the depths. And there's something left out. And our everyday consciousness screens this out in the same way that when you say you have weaving, you have, say, on this uh, rug here in front of us, when the black finishes here, the black threads will go underneath 
and then appear again over here, then they'll go underneath the white and then they'll appear again over here, you know? So that the back will be the obverse pattern of the front. Now, the world is like that. Our sense organs are selective. They pick out certain things, they are receptive. For example, we have a small, small band of uh, what you might call a spectrum of light, of sound, of tactile sensation and so on, to which the human organism is sensitive. But we know that outside that small band there is a huge range of vibrations to which we have built <coughs> instruments that are sensitive. Things like cosmic rays, ultraviolet rays, uh, <coughs> gamma rays, hard x-rays, and so on. They're all outside the band of our spectrum. And obviously, there are things that are outside the range of our instruments. We may build new instruments someday, which will evoke, bring into our consciousness other orders of vibration altogether. But yet, as yet, we don't know about them. So you could imagine, you see, the universe is a vast, vast system of vibrations and has infinite possibilities. All these vibrations, you know, are like the strings on a harp. And the harps that the angels are supposed to play in heaven are really this huge possibility. See, when you play the harp, you select strings. You don't play all the strings. It's stupid to just run your finger along the whole edge of the harp, back and forth, back and forth, and go... What you do is you pick out with your fingers, select less like on the piano, you don't go... You pick out certain notes, and these make the patterns. But at the same time as you pick out, you reject what you don't pick out. But it's all there, constituting a fundamental continuity, the kind of continuity of the thread as they go to the back of the woven material and make up the obverse of the pattern that's on the front. Now, the question that is absolutely basic for all human beings is, what have you left out, you see? You are focused on certain things that constitute what you call everyday reality. Look, you single out people, and you see them sitting, sitting, sitting all around, and you know there are things that are really there. And then behind the people are the houses or whatever we live in, and the, the earth, and behind all that the sky, and so on. But we see the world as a collection of rather disjointed events and things. And I might say to you, as you came in here today, now, my goodness, you all forgot something. <laughs> what did you forget? And you think, my goodness, did I put my pants on? Did I wear a sweater? Did I put my glasses and my hair on, or my wig, or whatever? <laughs> and uh, no, no, it's none of that. Well, something you've forgotten. See, everybody's forgotten something. You've left it out. You've just missed it. See, see? And so I can bring this out, what you've forgotten, if I ask you, who are you? 
well, you say I'm Paul Jones or whatever your name happens to be. I say, oh, no, 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 no don't give me that stuff. Who are you really? And you think, um, whoa, of course, I'm just, I'm just me. No, I don't, don't give me that. I, I don't want to hear all that nonsense. You're, you're playing a trick on me. Really, deep down, who are you? I don't know. Well, that's the thing to find out. That's the thing that's been forgotten, see? That's the underside of the tapestry, the thing that's been left out. Because what we are carefully taught to ignore is uh, that every one of us fundamentally, deep, deep inside, let's put it that way, is a an act of, a function of, a performance of, a manifestation of, the works. The whole blinking cosmos, with all its galaxies, and forever and ever and ever, whatever it is beyond that, what uh, you might call God in the Western tradition, or Brahman in Hindu philosophy, or Tao in Chinese. Every one of us is really that, but we are pretending we aren't. And we are pretending with tremendous skill and deception. Now, what I would call a really swinging human being is a person who lives on two levels at once. He's able to live on the level of being his ordinary ego, his everyday personality, and play his role in life and do observe all the rules and so on that go with that. But if he's only on that level, if he's only playing that kind of thing and thinks that's all there is, it becomes a drag. And he starts being the kind of person who feels that he's just got to go on surviving. See? It's terribly important to go on surviving, to live. And uh, he works at that. And his uh, children learn the same attitude from him. And they, you know, he says, well, I, I've got to survive because I've got all these children I've got to support and so on and so forth. And then they take the same attitude and they breed up children and they feel compulsive about supporting them because they've got to go on. And so nobody really has any fun. It's just... <coughs> We've got to make this thing, you see. And you don't have to. See, whenever I get somebody who comes to me and says, I really can't go on and I have to commit suicide, I say, well, that's entirely, uh, you're, you're right. There's really no reason why you should go on and if you want to commit suicide, do it. You can check out. Of course, this reduces anxiety when they feel free to commit suicide. They don't really have to commit suicide so, so much. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you can commit partial suicide. <laughs> so, uh, 
the sense that you just have to go on living, see, that life is a must. When you say to anything spontaneous, see, life is spontaneous. It happens in the words of the Taoists, Zeran, which means of itself so. That's their Chinese expression for nature. What happens by itself, what isn't pushed, but it just pops up, you see? Like, um, gee, I'll never forget, there was a great Zen master I knew once in New York. He was giving a lecture one evening, and he was dressed in his gold ceremonial robes, and he was sitting in front of an altar, like this sort of thing, and, but he had a table in front of him, with very formal, with candles on it, and a sutra scripture on a little desk, and he was lecturing on the sutra, and he said, um, fundamental principle in Buddhism is no purpose, purposelessness. When you drop fart, you don't say, at nine o'clock I drop fart. <laughs> It'll happen of itself. <laughs> You know, and all, all these pious Western devotees, you know, kind of put their handkerchiefs in their mouths and tried not to laugh. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's the meaning of something that happens of itself, like drop, drop fart or have hiccups or uh, um, just you, you came into being, you know. It happens in a kind of a plop way like that. See? Now, you can't tell that process. You ought to happen. You must happen. Because that puts a bind on it. In the same way as when you have a little child and all the relatives have come to a party on Thanksgiving and you put the child into the middle of all the relatives and say, now dear, play. See? It absolutely bugs the child to do it like that. And so this is the problem for every artist. Because an artist is a man who makes his living by playing, whether he's dancing or painting or playing music or whatever it is. And he has to overcome this problem. He has to know how to play in public at a given time on an appointment. See? Now that's not an easy thing to learn. But when you catch on to the trick of it, you can do it play on demand. That's the hardest lesson of life, to contrive what is called by my Japanese artist friend Saburo Hasegawa a controlled accident. The thing is that we have been educated to use our minds in a certain way, a way that ignores or screens out the fact that every one of us is an aperture through which the whole cosmos looks out. You see, it's as if you had a light covered with a black ball. And in this ball were pinholes. And each pinhole is an aperture through which the light comes out. So in that way, every one of us is actually a pinhole through which the fundamental light, that is the existence itself, looks out. 
Only the game we're playing is uh, not to know this. To be only that little hole, which we call me, my ego, my specific John Jones, or whatever. If, however, you see, we can maintain at the same time the sense of being this specific John Jones with his role in life, or whatever, and know also underneath this that we are the whole works, you get a very marvelous and agreeable arrangement. This is a, a most remarkable harmoniousness. I mean, it gives one's life a great sense of joy and exuberance if you can carry on these two things at once. If you, in other words, you know that all the serious predicaments of life are a game. Now, I want to put it two ways. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, something to be condemned, to take your own individual life seriously in dead earnest and to have all the problems that go with that. Do you understand that, that being that way, that being a real mixed-up human being is a manifestation of nature that is something just like um, the patterns on the waves out here, or like a seashell. You know, we pick up shells. I, I always keep one around uh, for sort of an example for many things and say, my goodness, isn't that gorgeous? There's not an aesthetic fault in it anywhere. It's absolutely perfect. Now, I wonder, I wonder if these fish look at each other's shells and say, don't you think she's kind of fat? <laughs> oh my, those markings aren't really very well spaced. Because <laughs> that's what we do. See, we don't realize that all of us in our various goings-on and behavior and so on are just as and more marvelous much more complicated, much more interesting. All these gorgeous faces that I'm looking at, you know, every one of them, some are supposedly pretty, some are supposedly not so pretty, but they're all absolutely gorgeous. And everybody's eyes is a piece of jewelry beyond compare. Beautiful. But we have specialized in a certain kind of awareness that makes us neglectful of that. You see, we specialize in more or less briefly concentrated pinpoint attention. We look at this and we look at that. And we select from all the things we might possibly be aware of only certain things. And as a result of that, we leave out of our everyday consciousness, generally speaking, two dimensions of experience. One amazing 
beauty of experience that we never see at all, and on the other hand, the very deep thing, the sense of our basic identity, unity with, oneness with, the total process of being. See, because we are staring, as it were, at certain features of the landscape, we don't see the background. And because we get fascinated with, you know, I could go into details of this shell, as I said, and put myself in the mind of a conch or whatever it is that lives in this thing, and say, um, hmm, that's not so hot, that one. Yeah. <laughs> like that, see? And so, I, I wouldn't see the whole thing. But when I look at it like this, when anybody looks at it like that, we say, oh my God, isn't that gorgeous? Another way of talking about the web is that there are different levels of magnification. For example, supposing you take a piece of embroidery, and here it is, obviously in front of you, an ordered and beautiful object. And then you take out a microscope, and you look at the individual threads. At a certain point, as you turn up the microscope, you'll get a hopeless tangle, which doesn't make any sense at all. The wrapped fiber that constitutes the thread is a mess. It hasn't been organized, nobody did anything about it. But at the level of magnification at which you actually see it with the naked eye, it's all been organized. All right, now keep turning up that microscope. Take one of those individual threads in the fiber that seems to be so chaotic and go into the constitution of that. And again, you'll find fantastic order. You'll find the most gorgeous designs of uh, molecules. Then to keep turning it up. And again, at a certain level, you'll find chaos again. All right, keep going. And at another level, you'll find this marvelous order. Now you see, order and randomness constitute, in other words, the warp and the woof. Where everything is in order, everything's under control, and randomness, it's all, all it's a mess. But we wouldn't know what order was unless we had messes. It's the contrast of order and messes that order itself depends upon. And so, in this exactly the same way, it is the contrast of on and off, there and not there, in other words, life and death, being and non-being, that constitutes existence. Only we pretend that the random side of things, the disorderly side of things, could possibly win in the game of competition or I would rather call it collaboration between the two. When you lose sight of the fact that the order principle and the random principle go together, that's exactly the same predicament as losing sight of the fact that all individually delineated things and beings are connected underneath.
you know, just like mountains stick out of the earth and there's a fundamental earth underneath them. So all of us, as different things, we stick out of reality and there's a continuity underneath, but you ignore that, you see. That's the thing that's left out. See, I'm just giving you many examples of the same principle. But really, deep down, we are, each one of us, everything that there is. Doing it this way, and then again that way, and then again another way, and that's what it keeps up doing forever and ever. Only, it has holidays, which are called deaths. You know in the story of the creation of the world in the Bible, God works for seven days and rests the seventh. It's necessary to have a holiday. Holiday is holy day. And uh, the Sabbath for the Jews is Saturday, for the Christians is Sunday, because Saturday is the last day of the week, but Sunday is the first day of the week. And it's a slight difference of alteration between a Jewish temperament and a Christian temperament. Some people like to take the holiday and then do the work. Other people like to do the work and then take the holiday. <laughs> and since the Jews do the work first and then take the holiday, they're always a little up on the Christians in business. <laughs> but the point is that a holiday, this pause between something going on, is of the essence of the idea of a web. For example, as a famous Irishman who's supposed to have described a net as a lot of holes tied together with string. <laughs> so the holes are very, very important. And uh, these are the holy days. You see the holes. This all goes together. <laughs> so there must be that interval and it exists on all kinds of levels it isn't simply that there is for example a sound that is sounded is a vibration and the sound goes on and off there, every everything that we call sound is sound silence there is no such thing as pure sound you couldn't hear it what you hear is that tap, 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 tap against the eardrum. But it happens very fast, so that you get more of an impression of sound than you do of silence. But between every little undulation of sound, there is also an interval. When you listen to music, you hear a melody. But what you hear, actually, that makes the melody significant are the steps between the tones what we call the intervals. And a person who doesn't hear intervals is tone deaf. He only hears noises. He doesn't hear the steps. So that interval between whatever happens is as important as what happens. So we'll call these two things, the sound and the silence, the life and the death, somewhat analogous in weaving to the warp and the woof. Now, look at the marvelous way in which warp and woof go together. A piece of cloth is an extraordinary thing when you consider it's made of a line of string. 
There's something that uh, always struck me as a child, fabulous, that string, just thread, could turn into cloth. Why should it hang together? How improbable. My mother was a very great artist in embroidery, did absolutely fabulous work. And uh, she could do everything with thread, sewing, knitting, embroidery, make tapestries, repair tapestries. Oh, just fabulous work. So I, I've grown up in a background where thread is of enormous importance. She made a living this way for a while. So I was always amazed at the way, say, you take a ball of wool and with knitting needles and suddenly it turns into a sweater. Fantastic. But I found out, you see, the secret of this, which is that it will do this, it will hold together by this combination of warp and woof, by this process where one thread goes under the other, omits the next, goes under the other, and then the next thing does the same thing but in the opposite way. Connect that. And they hold each other up. For example, you can put two sticks of wood and lean them against each other and they'll stand up. You know the Chinese character for man looks more or less like that. And although this is, a, this is simply the brush form, the brush abbreviation of what were originally the legs of a uh, little human stick figure, there's a story that Japanese children uh, sometimes learn from their mothers, that this, the reason this is the character for man is that two sticks <coughs> lent together, as I described, will keep each other up and the one depends on the other. It's mutual. And so in the same way, the existence of human beings depends on our supporting each other. Without that, no one of us can exist. But that, which may seem a little trite, a little sort of moralistic and so on, but it is absolutely fundamental that anything that there is, whenever we can say that something exists, existence is a function of relationship. Motion itself is a function of relationship. For example, uh, forgive me if some of you have heard this one before, but it's a very important basic lesson. If there is only one object, one small ball, in the middle of endless space. Nobody knows whether it's moving. Because you can't tell whether it's approaching anything or whether it's going away from anything, because there's nothing else. So in that state of affairs, no motion exists. But if we introduce a second ball into the picture, and the two either come towards each other or go away from each other, then we can say that both of them, or either of them, is in motion. We can't decide which is the one that's doing the moving. Because they, uh, it could be, could be one, could be the other. 
Now we'll put three balls into space. And we find two of them staying together and the other one going away. Now it's up to the two of them to decide whether the other one is going away from them or they are going away from the other because two is a majority in this case. And the vote always, of course, goes to the majority, the universe being basically a democratic organization. <laughs> and so it goes. Now, once you've got that, you can see that motion is a form of relationship. Or I, let me put it in another way. Energy is a form of relationship. If the universe is basically a play of energy, then you can say energy and relationship go together. Now, what is this saying? This is saying that being, existence itself, is relationship. Let's look at it in several other ways. You know the old question, if a tree crashes in a forest, and there is nobody around to hear it, is there a noise? This question has been discussed in many futile ways. But noise, basically, is a state of affairs that requires an eardrum and an audio nervous system behind the eardrum. When the tree falls, it makes the air vibrate. If there is anywhere around an ear with the appropriate nervous system, there will be a noise. Because noise is a relationship between motion in the air and ears. If there is not any ear around, there won't be any noise, although there will be vibration in the air. And if there is some instrument around, such as a microphone attached to a tape recorder, which is a mechanical copy of a human ear, then, according to that, there will be noise. There will be a vibration. In the same way, let's suppose the sun sends out light into space. Now, the space surrounding the sun will be black darkness, as if there were no light in it, unless a planet happens to float by. When a planet floats by, there will be light. In the darkness. But if there isn't anything to relate to the sun in that way, then comes no light. Now this goes right down to the root and ground of everything. It goes down to the essence of your nerves of uh, your whole being, that it's all an interdependence. And that's why one of the basic symbols of the universe is the Chinese yin-yang symbol, uh, which you know is a circle with an S curve in the center. One side of the S is black, the other is white. And uh, so it makes, as it were, two commas or two fishes. And the eye of the fish is the opposite color. The white fish has a black eye, the black fish has a white eye.
And these things are going like this. See? Curling in on each other. Now this thing is called a helix. And that is the fundamental form of the galaxies. The great nebulae we see out in space are doing this. Curves. And this is basically to the position of sexual intercourse. This is, uh, this is lovemaking. And this is, you know, when you hold hands and, and so on. Uh, this is it. But there are two involved, and the two are secretly one. Now, this is what I really want you to understand. To get into the unitive world underneath, underlying and supporting the everyday practical world, there have to be certain alterations in one's common sense. Now, there are certain ideas, and beyond these ideas, certain feelings, that are difficult to get across, not because they're intellectually complicated, not at all because of that, but because they're unfamiliar. They're strange. We haven't been brought up to accommodate them in exactly the same way that in past times people knew that the planets were supported in the sky because they were embedded in spheres of crystal. And if they weren't embedded in spheres of crystal, and of course you could see them because you could see through them, they would fall down on the earth. And now when astronomers finally suggested that there were no crystal spheres, people felt unbelievably insecure. See? They had a terrible time assimilating this idea. Now, do you see what it involves to assimilate a really new idea? You have to do quite a flip. For example, there are some people whose number systems only account for quantities. One, two, three, many. So they don't have any concept of four corners to a table. See, a table has many corners. And a uh, pile of pebbles is, in that sense, equivalent in manyness to the four corners of a table. Now they have difficulty, you see, in beginning to assimilate the idea of counting through and numbering all those corners or all those pebbles. But we've done that. And so to us that is perfectly simple. But imagine the kind of mentality, the kind of person to whom that is not simple at all. And now in exactly the same way, there is here what I'm trying to explain, a new idea that most people don't assimilate. And that is the idea of the total interdependence of everything in the world. The Buddhists in uh, Japan call it Jiji Muge. Jiji Muge, between thing and thing, between event and event, there is no block. And they represent this imagistically as a network, 
Imagine a multidimensional spider web covered in dew in the morning. And every single drop of dew on this web contains in it the reflections of all the other drops of dew. And of course, in turn, in every drop of dew that one drop reflects, there is the reflection of all the others again. And they use this image to represent the interdependence of everything in the world. In other words, if we give this dewdrop image, if we put it into a linguistic analogy, we would say this, words have meaning only in context. The meaning of any word depends upon the sentence or upon the paragraph in which it's found. So that if I say, this tree has no bark, that's one thing. And if I say, this dog has no bark, that's another thing. So you see always that the meaning of the word is, is in relation to the context. Now, in exactly the same way, the meaning as well as the existence of an individual person, an organism, is in relation to the context. You are what you are. Sitting here at this moment in your particular kind of clothes, and with the particular colors of your faces and your particular personalities, your family involvements, your business involvements, your neuroses and your everything. You are that precisely in relation to an extremely complex environment. So much so that if, let's take for example this piece of wood that forms a support to the beam out here, now, believe me, this is true. You can see that has little nubbles on it and so on. If it were not the way it is, you would not be the way you are. The line of connection between what is, it is, and you are is very, very complicated. Also, we could say, if a given star that we observe didn't exist, you would be different from what you are now. I don't say you wouldn't exist, but you would exist differently. Uh, but the, you might say the connection is very faint, is something that you don't ordinarily have to think about. It's not important. But basically it is important. Only you say, I don't have to think about it, because it's there all the time. See, for example, the floor is underneath you all the time some sort of flaw, some sort of earth. And you, re you really don't have to think about it. It's just always there, it's always around. If, if you're, you become insensitive, you stop thinking about it. But there it is. And so in the same way, our subtle interdependence with, Mind you, it's not just our plain existence. It's the kind of existence we have is dependent upon all these things. Also our plain existence, but that gets way down. 
But the, the fundamental thing is existence is relationship. In other words, if my finger up here is all alone and the wind doesn't move and nothing touches it, it stops knowing that it's there. But if something comes along and does, immediately it's aware that it's there. So, <laughs> you see, it takes two. We could have so much fun, but it takes more than one. And she don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> but in this way, you see, what we call duality, you can see, can't you, how duality is fundamental. It takes two. But duality is always secretly unity. Take the contrast between the words we use, explicit and implicit. They're very valuable words. What is explicit? What's on the outside? Let's say how we come on publicly. Explicitly, we are thus and so. We have a fight. Uh, we're in competition, say, in business, explicitly. But implicitly, we've worked this out we have agreed in a secret way that nobody knows about that this competition is extremely valuable to both of us. Now take it politically, for example. Let's take the situation of Russia versus the United States. Explicitly, in public, this has to be a big fight. These two ways of life, these two ideologies are opposed. They say, you know, we are... But behind the scenes, it's all been carefully worked out. You bet it has. That this opposition has to happen. Because our economy depends on it, and their economy depends on it, and everybody knows this who's, got, who's smart. But there are a lot of people who get taken in by the propaganda, and they should be taken in because that makes the thing work. <laughs> it's crazy. But that's the way it goes. And everything works this way. There is, uh, for example, when swans start to mate, they're not sure what they're supposed to do. And they, they begin to fight. I had a long talk about this with, with C.G. Jung. He lived uh, on the edge of Lake Zurich, and he had a little summer house right on the water's edge, and there were many swans there. And I was getting up after, at the end of a conversation with him, and we were beginning to walk back to the main house, and I said, isn't it true that swans are monogamous? And he said, yes, uh, they are. He said, do you know I have had most interesting relationships between these swans and many of my female patients who thought they were homosexual? I mean, Jung wasn't a... Uh, sexual snob. I mean, he, he understood all the legitimacy of all kinds of sexual variations. But he said, it has been a point of departure for our discussions. 
And he said, it's a very funny thing that when they begin to mate, they start fighting. And they don't know what it's all about, and then suddenly the fight turns into lovemaking. So that's what I mean. Underneath opposition, there is love. Underneath duality, there's unity. That Tweedledum and Tweedledee agreed to have a battle. So, you see, here's that weaving principle. The things hold together by over, under, under, over, over, under, under, over, over, under, under, over. And that creates a stuff, it creates a fabric, it creates clothing, it creates shelter, it creates what we call matter. Matter, martyr, mother, and also the same word, maya, illusion. <laughs> See, the world as a marvelous illusion. Now, we've got to go into this. Look, look at another form of the thing. You can play it not only by two as one, but you can play it by three as one. You know the uh, trademark for Ballantine's Ale, which is three interlocked rings. Now, the way these rings are interlocked is such that they are joined only if the three of them are present. If you take one away, the other two fall apart. This is a very interesting phenomenon, but it can be created physically with uh, steel rings. Their, their cohesion depends on all three of them being present. Now, we have tried scientifically to understand the world and explain its mysteries by analyzing the smallest, smallest particles of things that exist. Inquiring down, 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 what is this thing we call flesh or call steel or stone? What is it made of? Go down into the midst of it. And that's given us a certain understanding. But only half of the understanding equally important is not what is the tiniest particle, but in what context is the tiniest particle. You see? In, in relation to what is it? Just as the word bark, as I showed you, has different meanings in different sentences, so cells, molecules, atoms, have different properties in different contexts. So what uh, the scientist equally needs to study is not simply what is anything when very, very minutely analyzed, but where is it? When is it? That makes all the difference. So do you see that a lot of people who get anxious when they hear that everything is relative have no, no need to get that anxious. Relativity isn't some kind of slippery morass 
in which all standards and all directions get lost. Relativity is really the soundest situation that there is. See, it's the, it's the one supporting the other. It's this thing. Do you know this? This is wonderful. X marks the spot. Imagine this going on and on. Supposing my finger were indefinitely long, both fingers, and they were doing this. See, they're just crossing each other. Now, on one side of it, it's a pair of scissors, and it cuts. What is it on the other side? Why, it's opening female legs, saying, please come in. This utter softness, utter receptiveness. On the other side, it's... But on this side, it's... Please, 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 yes. Welcome. <laughs> and everything's based on that. See, it's this way. Sharpness, teeth, biting, spines, crab shells, all that kind of thing, you know. On the other side, it's the melting softness of life. See, they go together just like that. And goodness knows what it is on these outer two sides. I haven't, I haven't thought about that yet. <laughs> so, if you see that, if you, if you get that principle, you can feel yourself not sort of just rattling around in the world, as a kind of, um, you know, somebody who's been stuck down there. But you can feel yourself going on in absolutely exact relationship with everything around you. And this is very beautiful. It isn't just that you are here looking at what's out there like you might be photographing it with your eyes. It's that if that there wasn't there, you wouldn't be here. The outside thing that you see and the inside thing that you are are poles of the same magnet or back in front of the same coin, and without one there isn't the other. That means, of course, then, that we are living in the midst of a world of animals, vegetables, minerals, atmospheres, astronomical bodies that's highly intelligent. It's intelligence concentrated, crystallized in our brains. That's where it comes out, you see. In any field, let's say, let's take any field of forces. We take a chemical solution, and at certain critical points in this chemical solution, the crystals start to form. And so in the same way, the total intelligence of this whole universe 
crystallizes in human brains. Also in other kinds of brains. But that's where it really comes out. But it's the total intelligence of the whole field that does this. So we go with the whole thing, interdepend with it. We don't live in an environment which is just rock, just air, just atmosphere and so on. The environment's only like that when we think about it analytically and try to explain it. But when we think of it isn't just rock and air, see, but those things go together. When you see the interconnectedness, when you see in the simplest way how flowers go with bees and other insects, they don't live without them. Humans go with cattle, they don't exist without them. Plants, etc., etc., etc. When you see the intervals, the significance of the relationships between these things, it's only then, when you see that, that you are aware of the melody. Go back to the illustration I gave of the person who can't hear melody, who's tone deaf. He hears only a succession of sounds because he's not aware of the intervals. Now, most people are brought up to be tone deaf in respect to their own existence and the rest of the universe. They don't see the relationships. They're not aware of the unity. And so, once you, you spot that, you spot how everything goes with the thing, that you are one end and that out there is the other end, and they really go together, then you may be said to be living a harmonious life. This concludes Session 3 of Out of Your Mind, Essential Listening from the Alan Watts Audio Archives. Our program continues with Session 4. True presents Out of Your Mind, Essential Listening, from the Alan Watts Audio Archives, Session 4, The Web of Life, Part 2, with Alan Watts. In exploring the theme of the Web of Life, I have thus far discussed two principal topics. First, the web considered as selectivity. Experience considered as what we pay attention to on the one hand and what we ignore on the other. And I showed how the way in which we pay attention to the world creates, isolates, I'm using that as a noun. Isolates that we call particular things, events and persons, and they seem to be disconnected and to be alone, 
because we ignore the connections between them. And I used the analogy of weaving where the threads go underneath and join on the back in a way that is not seen on the front. So you might say in the unconscious, although I don't particularly like that word because it makes it seem as if it was something rather dead, but on the unconscious side of life, as on the back of the weaving or the back of the embroidery, there are connections which are not published. Now, in the second part of the theme was the web as mutuality. When I discussed the way the existence of a web, the existence of cloth or anything like that, depends on a mutual support of the warp and the woof. And this miraculous thing occurs that when the things support each other, uh, being comes into being, cloth comes into being. And so in exactly the same way, our world is a manifestation of relativity. And this requires a balance, a combination, a relationship of opposites in every domain of life. And although these opposites are explicitly different and even antagonistic, they are implicitly one. And that's the secret. See, there are these two secrets that we went into. The connection between what are supposed to be separate things and events and the mutual unity between what are manifestly, that is to say openly, for purposes of publication, opposites. Now this afternoon I'm going to take two other aspects of the web. The web is a trap, like the spider's web is a trap for flies. Also, the lovely embroideries are worn by women as traps for men from a certain, <laughs> from a certain point of view. And I want to consider the web as something playful. You see, there are so many ways of looking at it. And you will find that all these ways are, are right. But what we need is the fullness of the view. There are people, for example, who can see the web as a trap and get stuck with that. There are people to whom existence is simply hateful. They see it as nothing but a ghastly mistake. The Lord really erred when he created this world because he, he arranged it in such a way that everything lives by eating something else. And what I'm doing is I'm describing a certain point of view, you see. I'm not exactly philosophizing, I'm describing a point of view. You can look at life in such a way that the whole thing is, a, is this ghastly mistake. For example, there is no such thing as genuine kindness or love. Everybody is really pretending that they are loving other people in order to get some advantage from them. And indeed, there is a point of view which occurs in certain forms of paranoia where people don't seem to be real. They are mechanisms. And you can think that out quite intensely with a good deal of intelligence. After all, if you start from a good old Darwinian or Freudian basis and see that man is a material machine and that the consciousness of man is simply a very involved and complicated form of chemistry 
and that's it, what it is, you see. Well, then this awful uh, mechanical things, these uh, Frankensteins that everybody is, they come around and they say, well, I'm alive. I'm a human being, I have a heart. I love, I hate, I have problems, I, I feel. And you feel like saying, come off it. You're just a monster. Uh, and you put on this civilized act because really you're just a set of teeth on the end of a tube. <laughs> and you've got a ganglion behind those teeth, <laughs> which you call your brain or your so alleged mind. And this thing is really basically there for two purposes. One, to be cunning enough to get something to eat, to put down the tube, and the other, you know what, Mr. Freud's libido. And everything else, you see, can be construed as an elaborate, subtle way of pretending that that's not really what you want to do. But you do, but you put on a great show. Now, some people, according to this view, get mixed up. They so repress that what they really want to do is to eat and to screw that they get involved in higher things that are the masks for these activities <laughs> and uh, think that that's the real purpose of life. And then they become what's called neurotic. And uh, <laughs> because they get involved in being pure camouflage. So that's what's called escaping from the facts, not looking at life, not looking at reality correctly. Now, this is a very strange thing, you see, that it is partly true that the universe, so far as its biological aspect is concerned, is this weird system that lives by everybody eating everybody else. Only what we do to maintain what is called order and civilization is that various species make agreements, as it were, that they won't eat each other. They'll cooperate and so be an enormous gang which can uh, beat down the others. So the human being is the most successful so far of this gangster arrangement. We are the most predatory monsters on earth and we have cooperated to assault the fish and the vegetables and the chickens and the cows and everything, you see? Only we do it by not letting our left hand know what our right hand doeth. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, unless gentlemen happen to be prone to going hunting as a sport, they don't see their food killed. They don't see the slaughterhouse. And so what you get in the butcher in the market a steak, you know, is a thing in its own right. It has nothing to do with a cow. <laughs> uh, a steak is a thing shaped thus and so, and it uh, looks as if it might be like a banana or something like that, you know, and nobody worries. And when a fish is served up, it does indeed look like a fish, but it's not the squiggly, squirmy fish that comes out on the end of the fisherman's line. You know, when you really fish, you realize that the fish doesn't like it very much. <laughs> Now, there is that absolutely extraordinary side of things that is really terrifying. And so, let me repeat the illustration I used of the cross in the net, where one side of it is scissors that cut and eat teeth that chew and get this thing in, and the opening side of it 
is like James Joyce's in Ulysses, the girl who says yes, and I said yes, yes, yes. She wants to be absolutely ravaged by her man, you see. So it's open, open, open. But now comes the, the, the if we take the dark view of things, the horrible view, excuse me if I go into some rather gr grisly details, but have you ever heard of a vagina dentata? That is the idea that in the sexual organ of the woman there are teeth. And a lot of men have this fantasy and so are rendered impotent. They don't make love because they feel that the price of this blessed experience, this creative experience, this loving experience, is you're going to get trapped. You're going to get emasculated. You're going to lose your precious member. And uh, this is a very ancient fantasy. It appears throughout all known history. Because this is simply the woman's come on, where she attracts, but she's out really to get you. She is basically a spider mother, you see, <laughs> who is, is selfish and uh, doesn't really love you. Not really, but says she does. And, of course, there are on the other side all the tricks of the men, which go without mention. <laughs> so, this is a view of the world as a system of mutual exploitation and of maximal selfishness. Now, it's a very profitable view to explore. Everybody should do in their lifetime sometime two things. One is to consider death, to observe skulls and skeletons, and to wonder what it will be like to go to sleep and never wake up. Never. That uh, is the most, it's a very gloomy uh, thing for contemplation, but it's like manure. Just as manure fertilizes the plants and so on, so the contemplation of death and the acceptance of death is very highly generative of creative life. You get wonderful things out of that. And the other thing to contemplate is to follow the possibility of the idea that you are totally selfish. That you don't have a good thing to be said for you at all. You are a complete, utter rascal. <laughs> Now, the, the Christians have avoided this because although they say in their Episcopalian form of confession that we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep and we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts, too much, you know, uh, we have offended against thy <laughs> holy laws, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done and we have done those things which we ought not to have done and there is no health in us. But, <laughs> it ought to be different and we're going to do our best to amend with the help of God's grace and that is a real con act because uh, if you equate health with genuine love and perfect unselfishness then in that sense there is no health in us when we look at ourselves from this point of view now when you go deeply into the nature of selfishness what do you discover? 
who say, I love myself, I seek my own advantage. Now what is the self that I love? What do I want? And that becomes an increasingly ever-deepening puzzle. Now I've often referred to this when you say to somebody else, I love you. It's always rather disconcerting to the person to whom you say that if you imply that you love them with a pure, disinterested, and holy love, they automatically suspect it as being a little bit phony. But if you say, I love you so much I could eat you, that's an expression, it's a way of saying to a person, you attract me so much that I can't help it. I'm absolutely bowled over by you, I'm gone. And people like that. Then they feel they're really being loved, that it's absolutely genuine. But now, I love you so much I could eat you. Now what the devil do I want? I certainly don't want to eat the girl in the sense of literally devouring her, because then she'd disappear. <laughs> ah. But I love myself. And what is me? How do, in what way do I know me? When it suddenly occurs to me that I know me only in terms of you. See, when I think of anything that I know and that I like, then it's always something that can be viewed as other than me. I can never get to look at me, real me. It's always behind. It's always hidden. And I really don't know it well enough to know whether I love it or not. Maybe I don't. Maybe it's an appalling mess. But certainly the things I do love and that I want from a selfish point of view, when I really think about them, they're all something else that's in a way outside me. Now, we saw that there is a reciprocity, a total mutual interdependence between what we call the self and what we call the other. That's the warp and the woof. And so, if you are perfectly honest about loving yourself, and you don't pull any punches, you don't pretend that you are anything other than exactly what you are, you suddenly come to discover that the self you love, if you really go into it, is the universe. You don't like all of it. You are selective about it, as we saw in the beginning. Perception is selection. But on the whole, you love yourself in terms of what is other. Because it's only in terms of what is other that you have a self at all. So then, I feel that the, one of the very great things that C.G. Jung contributed to mankind's understanding was the concept of the shadow that everybody has a shadow and that the main task of the psychotherapist is to do what he called to integrate the evil to as it were put the devil in us in its proper function because you see it's always the devil the unacknowledged one 
the outcast, the scapegoat, the bastard, the bad guy, you see, the black sheep of the family. It's always from that point, that which we could call the fly in the ointment, you see, that generation comes. In other words, uh, in the same way as in the drama, uh, to have the play, it's necessary to introduce a villain. It's necessary to introduce a certain element of trouble. So, in the whole scheme of life, there has to be the shadow, because without the shadow there can't be the substance. So this is why there is a very strange association between crime and all naughty things and holiness. You see, holiness is way beyond being good. Good people aren't necessarily holy people. A holy person is one who is whole, who has, as it were, reconciled his opposites. And so there's always something slightly scary about holy people. And other people react to them in very strange ways. They can't make up their minds whether they're saints or devils. And so holy people have throughout history always created a great deal of trouble along with their creative results. <laughs> Take Jesus, for example. The trouble that Jesus created is absolutely incalculable. <laughs> Think of the Crusades, the Inquisition, the heaven only knows what's gone on in the name of Jesus. Very remarkable. Freud's a big troublemaker, uh, as well as a great healer, you see. It all goes together. So the holy person is scary because he is like the earthquakes, or better still, he's like the ocean. See the ocean on a lovely sunny day, you can say, oh, isn't that gorgeous? And you can go into it and relax and float around. But boy, when the storm comes, does that thing get mad. It's terrifying. So there is in us the ocean, you see. And Jung felt that the whole point was to bring the two together and uh, by a kind of a fantastic honesty to penetrate one's own motivations to the depths. Jung had a tremendous humor. And he knew that nobody can be completely honest. That you will try and you'll have a great deal of success in uh, exploring your motivations and your dark, unconscious depths. But there will be a certain point at which you will say, well, I've had enough of that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and do you see how, in a strange way, there's a certain sanity in that? When a person indulges in a certain kind of duplicity, of deception, there is something, you all laughed when I said that, there was something humorous about it. And this humor is a very funny thing. Basically humor is an attitude of laughter about oneself. There is malicious humor, or, which is laughing at other people, but real deep humor is laughter at oneself. Now why fundamentally do you laugh about yourself?
What makes you laugh about yourself? Isn't it because you know that there is a big difference between what goes on the outside and what goes on the inside? <laughs> that if I hint, you see, that your inside is the opposite of your outside, it makes people laugh. If I don't do it unkindly, if I get up in the attitude of a preacher and say, uh, you're a bunch of miserable sinners and you ought to be different, nobody laughs. <laughs> but if I say, well, after all, boys will be boys and girls will be girls, and we, we all know, then, then, then people laugh. Now, you see, what's, what's happening when we do that? Now, I passed you around a lot of embroidery to look at before we started. And I'm perfectly sure that you got the point that there's a big difference between the front and the back. In some forms of embroidery, the back is very different from the front because people take shortcuts. In the front, everything is orderly and it is supposed to be kind of messy on the back side. See, which side will you wear? You've got to be sure you get the front in the front have the back in the back. The back has all the little tricks in it, all the shortcuts, all the lowdown that people don't acknowledge, you see. And it's exactly the same with the way we live. You know, like sweeping the dust under the carpet in a hurry just before the guests come. I mean, we do ever so many things like that. And if you don't do it, if you don't think you do it, and you think, well, really, I, my embroidery is the same on both sides, see, well, you're deceiving yourself. Because what you're doing is you're taking the shortcuts in another dimension, which you're keeping out of consciousness. Everybody takes the shortcuts. Everybody plays tricks. Everybody has in himself an element of duplicity, of deception. Because you see, from this point of view that I'm discussing, where the web is the trap, to be is to deceive. Think of camouflage, the chameleon who changes its color. Think of the butterfly pretending it has eyes. Think of the flower saying to the bee, like my honey. <laughs> the bee says, wow. <laughs> but then that means that the bee has to be, and it has to go on living, and all the trouble it takes to go around collecting honey and raising other bees and organizing itself and doing that dance which tells the other bees where there's more honey. There's all that stuff to do. But the flower was deceptive. Now, in the same way I've often said, life is, is a drama, and a drama is a deception. It's a big act. When you peel an onion and you don't really understand the nature of an onion, you might look for the pit in the center, like any ordinary fruit has. But the onion doesn't have a center. It's all skins. And so when you get right down, there's nothing but a bunch of skins. You say, well, that was a kind of disappointing. <laughs> but of course, you have to understand that the skins were the part that you eat. Well, in rather the same way, you see, you find when you explore yourself, uh, and your motivations, and you go through and through, and you try to find out that thing which is really genuine. That's why in Zen, discipline 
they give you koans which require a perfectly genuine act, an act of total and absolute sincerity. And people knock themselves out trying to do this thing, but they always know that the master's going to catch them because <laughs> he reads their thought. You know that story of um, von Kleist about the man who had a fight with a bear and the bear could read his thoughts so that the only way of hitting the bear was to do so not on purpose because the bear would know in advance. So it's the same in working with a Zen master. You have to do the genuine act not on purpose. But since you are put in a situation where it's rather formal and you're supposed to do it on purpose, you're stuck, you see. So you explore the onion and you go in and in and in and then you find, well, uh, it's all a deception. Now then the question arises, who's deceiving who? Who's fooling who? I'm fooling me? What is fooling? Fooling is playing like you're there when you're not. You know, getting somebody else to answer your name in the roll call. <laughs> so, we're all, you see, this is the metaphysical basis of it. This is what the Hindus mean by maya, the world illusion. The world is playing it's there when it isn't. And it's a trap. And it sucks you in. And you can't get out of it. And it's a thorough big trap too. But always when you get an idea like this or a feeling like this, follow it to its extreme. Don't back out from it. If you find you're selfish, go to the extreme of what selfishness means. Confusion largely results from not following feelings or ideas to their depth. You know, people think they want to be immortal. They'd like to live forever. Do you really want to do that? Think about it. Really go into it, what it would be like. People say they want this, that, and the other. They want this kind of car, they want this kind of dress, or so on, and um, this much money, and so on. It's always a good idea to think it right through. What it would involve to be in that situation, to have those desires fulfilled. Also, when you form a relationship to another person, think it through, too. You see? How inconvenient could they be? <laughs> However attractive. And uh, always turn the em embroidery round and look at the underside, but don't get caught doing it. <laughs> See, that's something one does on the side, in secret, because otherwise you play the game that everything is as it's supposed to be on the front. But that makes you humorous, and that makes you human. Out of Your Mind now continues with the next lecture from the Web of Life Lecture Series. Now, summing up, 
we've discussed the web from three points of view. As an analogy of the selective operation of our senses and mind, whereby certain things in the world are picked out as significant according to certain game rules. The game that we are playing mostly is the survival game. That is to say, the game ought to go on. Only the way we play the survival game has a, a kind of element in it which makes it difficult because we tend to say the first rule of this game is that it's serious. And that messes the whole thing up. So you have to watch out, in other words, when you play for contradictory game rules self-contradictory game rules because if you get mixed up into them the game ceases to be worth the candle you start straining at doing something and it just isn't worth it then the second thing that we observed was the web as an analogy of mutual interdependence we could call it the idea that all existence is relative that all existence is transactional the transaction being typically exemplified by, say, the operation of buying and selling, in which there can be no buying without somebody selling and there can be no selling without somebody else buying. That kind of interdependence of the inside going together with the outside, what is in you going together with what is outside you is absolutely fundamental to existence. It is existence. Existence is relativity. Then we explored the web as a trap, the spider's web. Won't you come into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. And we saw what happens if you look at all of life from the point of view that it is original selfishness and original hunger. And we found that if you take that point of view to its ultimate extreme, it dissolves. And it isn't so bad after all. There's a famous comment that R.H. Blythe made on the passage in Macbeth where Shakespeare says, it is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And Blythe says, when it's put that way, it doesn't seem so bad after all. <laughs> I remember that I had a Zen master friend who wrote a letter to a friend of mine which was passed on to me saying that the greatest writers, this friend of mine was aspiring to be a writer and he was trying to write novels that would put across Buddhism to people, you know, sugar the pill. And my Zen master friend didn't approve of this at all. He said, don't write any story to people write it to the great sky because all the real masters of literature especially novelists and storytellers are great masters of nonsense think of Lewis Carroll you can uh, use Lewis Carroll and he did use Alice in Wonderland as a Zen textbook because twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe and that's uh, that's Zen 
I had a discussion with a great master in Japan on the last visit there, and uh, we were talking about the various people who are working to translate the Zen books into English. And uh, he said, that's a waste of time. If you really understand Zen, he said, you can use any book. You could use the Bible. You could use Alice in Wonderland. You could use the dictionary. Because, he said, the sound of the rain needs no translation. So what does the rain say? Evening rain. It is the banana leaf that speaks of it first. You see, that's the point. And all the talk in the world doesn't get it unless you listen to the talk in a new way. The sound of the rain needs no translation. So you see, there's something going on, this web, may be looked at as, a, as pattern. And the world is basically patterning. What else do you do when you come to think of it? When you eat, you uh, are turning food into the pattern of your skeleton, your muscles, and your nervous system. That's a pattern. And you say, you see, basically, hooray for that pattern. That's great. It's terribly interesting. But then you want other patterns. You like to look through a microscope and see the patterns that exist in the small world. You like to look through a kaleidoscope or a telidoscope and see the patterns. You like to have paintings around and see the patterns. You like to watch the water play. You want to watch the birds go and the clouds and all that. Fascinating patterns. And that really does, doesn't it, seem to be the point. I mean, what do you do when you're very rich and you want... Uh, let's take some rascal of ancient times who became very rich by all sorts of skullduggery and uh, warfare and so on. He got himself a suit of armor beautiful sword and he had the armorer make the most intricate patterns arabesques of inlaid gold on the steel why because it's as they say among the Pennsylvania Dutch it's for nice <laughs> it's a great thing to have all that jazz and that's what we go for what do people do most of the time when they... What would they like to do, really? What's your idea of heaven? When people are unoccupied, as far as I can make out, they get together and they sing and dance. Or else watch somebody else do it. Nowadays we live in a non-participative culture and we don't do very much singing and dancing. We are lugubrious but we watch other people do it on television. 
What we really are interested in is to be able to spend all the time going to hoot about it, boo dee dee boo ba dee boo doo dee doo dee doo doo chico boo boo boo, you know something like this. And that's what our hearts doing. That's what our lungs are doing. It's what our eyeballs are doing. And it's what all these fantastic capillaries of the veins are doing. They're going just doo dee boo doo hubba ba 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 boo ba dee 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 dee. See, and that's the point. Now the thing is. Ought this to be allowed? <laughs> you know, a dare we admit it, <laughs> because we've been brought up, you see, in a cultural context in which the universe is presided over by somebody serious. And it's only very, very occasional obscure references in the Jewish and Christian scriptures to the idea that God dances. Of course, in Hindus, they know Shiva dances, and all the gods dance, and they're represented in the, in the dance. But in our way of looking at things, no. Back deep down in there is something that you must respect with a very, very, you, you, mustn't, you mustn't laugh in church, especially if you got in front of the throne of heaven. Everybody would be dead silent. Wow, you see, I mean, that's really serious. Here is the Father Almighty world without end, and you watch out, don't you? laugh. Why not? Because Father Almighty, world without end, is a very insecure fellow. <laughs> and uh, if anybody laughed, he might feel uneasy, you know, that there was something, uh, something wrong going on, <laughs> that someone challenged his power. So he, he is a, he's a funny fellow, you see, as we've mythologized ultimate reality in the form of this cosmic uh, grandpapa who is also a king and is demanding above all things reverence and respect. So it's difficult for us because of that cultural heritage to accept, to accommodate our common sense to the idea that the web might basically be playful. That it might be like somebody saying, won't you come and play with me, a child? And the other child uh, has some little hesitation. I don't know whether I ought to play with you. You come from the wrong side of the tracks. Or um, I don't feel like playing today. I feel serious. I don't think play is important. We ought to do something real, like uh, wash the dishes for mother. Who, incidentally, has forgotten that the whole point of washing the dishes is playful. You know, uh, you don't wash the dishes f for a serious reason. You, you like the table to look nice, you know. You don't want to serve up the dishes for d dinner with all the leavings of breakfast still lying on them. Uh, so why do you want the table to look nice? Well, again, it's for nice, you see. It's, uh, it's, uh, you like the pattern on it that way. People get terribly compulsive about doing these things. And they think that uh, going on 
arranging the patterns of life is something that's a duty. That means a debt that you owe it to yourself or to your family or to someone or other. You're in debt. See, that's the trouble. When a child comes into the world, the parents play an awful game on it. Instead of being honest, they say, we've made such great sacrifices for you. Here we are, we've supported you, we've uh, paid for your education, and you're an ungrateful little bastard. And uh, the child feels terribly guilty because what we do is we build into every human being the idea that existence is guilt. The, the existentialists make a big thing of this, and you watch out for them because they're hoaxes. And they say that guilt is ontological. If you're not feeling guilty, you're not human. And that was because Papa and Mama said, look at all the trouble you've caused us. You shouldn't dare to exist. You have no rights. But maybe we'll give you some out of the generosity of our hearts so that you'll be permanently indebted to us. And so everybody goes around with that sort of thing in their, in their background unless they had different kinds of Papas and Mamas who didn't play that trick on them. But so many Papas and Mamas do do that. And if they don't do it, somebody else does it. Auntie comes around and says, you don't realize what your father and mother have done for you. You think you know you can just stay around here and goof off. But they have sweated blood to uh, give you your clothes and food and so on, and you, you ought to be grateful for it. But that's not the way to make people grateful. They won't be grateful that way. They'll imitate gratefulness. They'll go and put on a big show and say, oh, thank you so much, I feel so indebted to you, and so on and so forth, and they'll make it look good. But it isn't real. Because, actually, one's father and mother had a great deal of fun bringing you into being, or we hope they did. And they wanted to do that the worst way. They have no reason to complain about all these things and try and make the children feel guilty. But you see, it is an amazing thing in our culture that everybody is afflicted with ontological guilt. For example, if a policeman comes to the door, everybody is instantly frightened. You wonder, what on earth have I done? And there are certain clergy who are absolute experts in making you feel guilty. They are really marvelous. And there are clergy of all kinds, for all classes, and for all levels of intelligence. <laughs> they can make you feel real guilty. <laughs> Only you have to watch always what games people are playing. Now you see, the thing is, that really is a puzzle, is that they don't admit they're playing games. And when a person is playing games and doesn't admit that they're playing games, then you have some kind of a, of a trickster who um, isn't really being fair to you. Now, of course, the game, that this game is not a game, has a certain kind of a fascinating quality to it. How mixed up can we all get? Let's try. See? That, that is that certain possibility in that. I, I would like to go insane and be as insane as anybody has ever been and uh, be the farthest out crazy nut in the world. See, that's a game. But it's not a good game.
it's a, a game being played by a person who didn't really understand that everyday life was a game too. And I think the most important thing is to admit this. All really humane people admit that they're rascals. That's, you see, on the side of the not respectable, the selfish. But so also, all humane people should admit that they're jokers, that they're playing games and playing tricks, that I am doing it on you. I am most ready to admit this. I hoaxed you all into coming here to tell you what. <laughs> This was a trap, you see, but I'm going to make it an entertaining trap so that uh, you won't feel so badly about it. Uh, now, this is philosophy, but I think philosophy is like music. You go to a concert and you listen to somebody play Bach or Mozart or Beethoven. And what's all that about? You know, it isn't about anything except you know, that's what it's about. And so, in the same way, uh, the, as I conceive my work as a philosopher, I'm simply pointing out that existence is the same kind of a thing as a Bach invention. It's going this way and that way and hills and waters going all out there and the fish are going around in it and uh, breeding and the ducks are doing this that and the other and that's the same thing as see so uh, if you can uh, admit that that that's what it's all about you have a little problem because there's not only the threat that it really might be serious and that you shouldn't be laughing about this <laughs> but there's also a kind of opposite then are you saying it's merely just fiddling around see? I mean you're saying it's only a game is that all there is to it well now what do you think you see, this again is a question that everybody has to think things through. What did you want? <laughs> Didn't you want a game? Did you want it to be serious in the end? What, I mean, think about the question. What kind of a, a thing would you like God to be? What would you like to do for eternity? Really? Here is... Uh, Jan van Eyck, who paints the eschatological picture of the Last Judgment. What a strange man he must have been. For here is heaven above and hell below. And in heaven, here's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, all there together, and the Virgin Mary, and the Apostles, and they're all sitting in committee. And they have an aisle, you know, just like in church, and there they are facing each other, and they're all sitting there very solemnly. Now, I don't know what it's about. But below, right at the end of the aisle, you see, where all these apostles are sitting, is St. Michael. A rather gorgeous figure in beautiful armor with wings. And underneath him is a bat-winged skull 
and beneath those bat wings, though, all horror is let loose. Michael is about to slosh that skull, see, with his sword. But below, ooh, there are nude bodies, some of them pretty comely, and they're all squirming in there, and they're being eaten by worms. And they're eating the worms, and there's a kind of a mush. It's like the sort of situation you find when you turn up a big rock, and there's all that going on underneath. <laughs> now, there's no question whatever that Van Eyck, the painter, had more fun painting that part of the picture than he did painting the top part. <laughs> so in the same way with, the, with Hieronymus Bosch and with Bruegel, they painted every kind of weird surrealistic deviltry going on, and they really loved it, but they couldn't admit it. Now, the only time when the holy people had a ball was when, for example, the Islamic artists made arabesques and the Celtic artists made um, fantastically intricate lattices to decorate the margins of their gospels and uh, missals. They are unbelievably beautiful, or take stained glass or something like that. But what are they doing? What's it all about? So when you ask the question, then what will you do in heaven? And the thing you want to do, of course, is to get mixed up in this... This little... See, like, it's like the musician. He likes to take a melody, then he likes to put another melody that fits in with it, and another one that fits in with both, and then a fourth one, and arrange them together, and he invents an instrument like an organ that he plays with two hands, then he adds foot pedals so that he can play with his two feet. And he can get this hand doing one rhythm, this doing another, this doing another, and this doing another. See, that makes it complicated. And so when drummers get together and play, somebody starts out with a certain rhythm, and then that rhythm has holes in it. In other words, it has certain silences, and the next drummer fills those silences in an interesting way. He counts and picks out a pattern. And what do you imagine DNA is? The basic form of biological existence. Now, DNA is like a necklace, like Charlotte's wearing, with different kinds of beads in it. And according to the order and the way those beads are arranged, so you get genes, and so you get the particular form of life that emerges from those genes. So what we're doing, basic down, way down, is saying, she loves me, she don't. She'll have me, she won't. She wouldn't if she could, but she can't. You see? <laughs> or, <laughs> Tinker, Taylor, Solo, Savior, Rich Man, Poor Man, Beggar Man, Thief. Well, this is the way life is going on. <laughs> and <laughs> as a result comes all this. You see? Question is then, you see, in your heart of hearts, you can take the attitude that all this is terrible. or that it's dreadfully serious. You see, you can play comedies, you can play tragedies, uh, farces, histories and romances and all that kind of thing, and you can take these various attitudes to it. But if you are awakened, and as it were, you've been let into the secret, which is what we've been talking about, see? As the web is also the curtain, you know, the veil. Veil which hides the face of God from the angels, you see. There's always this veil. That's why we like a striptease. Because there's an implication. Be, you should never give the show completely away. 
There always be a little bit of a veil left, you see. There always is. Because even if you find the striptease artist gets completely naked, there's really something hidden. What's the motivation? What sort of a person is she? Would I really like to embrace her? Or would she have bad breath? <laughs> no? Or something. And uh, you, you never really know. You never really get to the bottom. That's why everybody, all men poets, say that women are basically mysterious. And they ought to be. So are men basically mysterious, from women's point of view. Although they play that they're not. See, this is the way it goes. Men are supposed to be very open. And they say, well, of a certain situation, this is the way it is. After all, it's perfectly rational. It's just a matter of practical affairs. And women say, well, she say, I'm not quite as articulate as you are, but I know there's something you've left out, but I can't explain it. <laughs> and by this means, everything is kept going. <laughs> so, what I'm saying is, I think this. I'm trying to share with you a certain style of life and an attitude to life and an insight. Well, I've taken you on one side and said, listen kids, things aren't what they seem. Don't be fooled. There's a big deception going on and you're involved in it, but I just thought you ought to know it. And enjoy it. See? I, I'm terribly puzzled about the way people go out of their way to disenjoy themselves. They take so much trouble about it. Did you ever read H.L. Mencken's essay called A Libido for the Ugly? And it describes a Pennsylvania mining town which isn't exactly totally impoverished. I mean, they can build things and they uh, have enough money to do this, that and the other. But they, he describes how they made a, a church out of yellow stone that's so awful that it looks like a Presbyterian with a grin. <laughs> and all around you have only to look and you see this perfect passion for making the world look grisly. And it isn't only job builders and uh, garage owners who do this kind of thing. It's also people who profess to be painters. They're actually using excrements for painting in Paris today uh, on the theory that the world is shot to pieces, and that the, since the artist is a representative of his times, he ought to show the times as they really are as a social critic. And so he makes the most weird I mean, he paints Campbell's soup can, and then, and then he makes music that shrieks and screams in the most... Uh, he, he just goes out of his way to make it sound as ugly as he possibly can manage. And the ingenuity is about that is endless. Because that is the times. This is critical, you see. Instead of being somebody who reveals. Now, you see, let's take you the, the sort of the character of the Pied Piper. The person who brings you an invitation to dance. I would say then, you see, there is going to be a dance this evening, and I would like you all to come, you know. That's the spirit in which I invite you to a seminar. I am not inviting you in the spirit 
of saying, now, uh, we're going to have to discuss some very grave matters, and you ought to be awake to all these things and arouse your social conscience, and uh, so on and so forth, uh, because when you get through with all that, then what? When you get through with feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, and we are making great strides with automation and technology in abolishing poverty totally, then what are we going to do? Well, you see, if you've got all these people clothed and fed and so on, and then they say, well, now what next? If you've got a kind of Quakerish state of mind, you don't know what to do. Well, uh, feed and clothe somebody else. You see? Get busy. But then, where is that leading? So you see, to spread joy, you have to have it. To impart delight, you have to be more or less delightful. And to be delightful is not some factor of trying to make yourself look delightful. It is to do things that are delightful to you. You become thereby delightful to others. That's to say, people who are interesting are people who are interested. Any person, for example, who is constantly thinking about all sorts of other things and other people and so on, because they're fascinating, becomes a fascinating person. But a person who doesn't think about anybody else and who's got very little going on inside their skull is boring. So, in other words, your engagement with the external world, the more you are involved, the more your personality is enriched. But if you try to enrich your personality by taking a course in how to win friends and influence people, or how to be a real person, you become just a washout. <laughs> because you will be in a sign of small circle, you'll be, as it were, you'll be like somebody trying to get a good nutrition by biting his nails. And then the fingers next. You know, and then half an arm gone and so on. And uh, you're, you're entirely nourishing yourself with yourself. Now, of course, on a vast scale, the universe does that. It eats itself up. That's why the symbol of the snake swallowing its tail is a very fundamental, archaic symbol of life. But the way it's done is that the snake has in some part of the ring a place where it's not sensitive. It's called the unconscious. Where it doesn't know that what comes to it in the form of food is actually what left it in the form of excrement. That thing is, don't mention it. After all, as the Lord said at the beginning of the universe, you must draw the line somewhere. <laughs> and so, as a result of there always being a kind of gap, that's the gap, you know, like where the electric spark jumps. That's the thing behind your head, behind your eyes that you could never get to look at. It's the gap. And because of that little gap, the circle 
doesn't just revolve in a dull way, just go round and round and round like a boring thing. It has rhythm. See, if I say, Yoi! No rhythm. See? It's just one long sound. And after a while we say, oh, cut it out. Uh, or, or we just become insensitive to it. But what we want to hear is a break in it, you see. And we want to hear it go on and off and vanish and come back again and so on. And then it sets up a rhythm. That becomes interesting. That's putting gaps between, you see. We need those gaps. So now you see it, now you don't. Now you see it, now you don't. Oh, that's pretty dull. So what we're going to do is this. We're going to have you see it three times, and then with a regular not see it between them. Then there's going to be a longer not see it after that one. And then I'm going to do something very complicated after that so that you don't, don't really know when it's going to come next. So there's going to be a surprise. You know how we all do that? And interesting people are those who do this in very involved ways. Dull people, sort of people who put their hats on absolutely straight, uh, are the kind of people, for example, who have the same meal every day, exactly the same thing, always. See? Have no in inventiveness. They have the same routine, they go to the same office, they answer the same kind of letters, and that's that. See? But then, if they want to start up a more interesting kind of business and make more money, then they have to figure out... Let's take the people who make clothes. They figure out fashion. It's going to be a new thing for ladies, a new style this fall. We're going to make them do long skirts instead of the short skirts, middle skirts. And the skirts go... like this. Then finally they thought about having topless women. Um, <laughs> They're going to play around with that and have an absolutely scandalous ball. But that's the whole thing, you see. It's this thing of rhythm. And yes, you ask, well, I see that. What is doing this rhythm? Or who, after all, am I? And as you explore deeper and deeper and deeper into the nature of yourself, you find that you're a rhythm doing a rhythm. And behind that, there's another rhythm doing a rhythm. Your vibrations. And once again, you meet our friend, the onion. And who, who is doing all this? Why, he disappeared. He came around, and there it was, and uh, we were looking for him, and he vanished. And then just when we weren't looking for him again, there he is. But uh, every time we try to see, he isn't there. Now, do you see that? That that situation... is what's called life. This concludes session four of Out of Your Mind, Essential Listening from the Alan Watts Audio Archives. Our program continues with session five. presents Out of Your Mind, Essential Listening from the Alan Watts Audio Archives. 
Session 5, The Inevitable Ecstasy, with Alan Watts. This seminar is about a very sticky problem. The problem to which the Buddha primarily addressed himself, which is that of agony, suffering. But before we get into that, we have to be clear about certain basics. And these basics have to do not so much with concepts and ideas, as they do with a state of mind. You could call it also a state of feeling, a state of sensation, a state of consciousness. And we need to understand that, even be in that, before we can really go very far. And this is an extraordinarily difficult state of mind to talk about, even though in its nature it's extremely simple because it is in a way like we were when we were babies. When we hadn't been told anything and didn't know anything other than what we felt and we had no names for it. Now of course as we grow older we learn to differentiate one thing from another, one event from another and above all ourselves from everything else well and good, provided you don't lose the foundations. Just as mountains are differentiated, but they're all based on the earth, so the multiple things of this world are differentiated. But they have, as it were, a basis. There is no word for that basis, not really because words are only for distinctions. And so there can't really be a word, not even an idea, of the non-distinction. We can feel it, but we can't think it. But we don't feel it like an object. You feel you're alive. You feel you're conscious, but you don't know what consciousness is because consciousness is present in every conceivable kind of experience. It's like the space in which we live, which is everywhere. It's like a fish being in water, and presumably a fish doesn't know it's in the water, because it never goes out. A bird presumably knows nothing of the air, and we really know nothing of consciousness, and we pretend space isn't there. <laughs> so, however, when you grow up, and become fascinated, which is really the right word, spellbound, enchanted, by all the things that adults wave at you. You forget the background. And you come to think that all the distinctions which you've been learning are the supremely important things to be concerned with. You become hypnotized just in the same way as when the beak of a chicken is put to a chalk line, it gets stuck on that line. And so when we are told to pay attention to what matters, 
we get stuck with it, and that's what in Buddhism is called attachment. Attachment doesn't mean that you enjoy your dinner or that you enjoy sleeping or beauty. Those are responses of our organism in its environment as natural as feeling hot near a fire or cold near ice. So are certain responses of fear or of sorrow. They are not attachment. Attachment is exactly translated by the modern slang term hang-up. It's a kind of stickiness or what in psychology would be called blocking when you are in a state of wobbly hesitation not knowing how to flow on. That's attachment, what is meant by the Sanskrit word klesha. So when the chicken has its beak put to the chalk line, it's got a hang-up. It's stuck on that line. And so in the same way, we get a hang-up on all the various things that we are told as we grow up by our parents, our aunts and uncles, our teachers, and above all, by our peer group. And the first thing that everybody wants to tell us is the difference between ourselves and the rest of the world, and between those actions which are voluntary and those which are involuntary, what we do on the one hand and what happens to us on the other. And this is, of course, immensely confusing to a small child because it's told to do all sorts of things that are really supposed to happen, like going to sleep, like having bowel movements, like uh, loving people, like not blushing, stopping being anxious, and all sorts of things like that. So what happens is this. The child is told in sum that we, your parents, elders and betters, command you to do what will please us only if you do it spontaneously. <laughs> <laughs> and no wonder everybody's completely confused we go through life with that burden on us <laughs> so we therefore develop this curious thing we, we, we develop a thing which is called an ego now I've got to be very clear to you what I mean by an ego An ego is not the same thing as a particular living organism. For my philosophy, the particular living organism, which is inseparable from a particular environment, that is to say from the universe as centered here and now, is something real. It isn't a thing. I call it a feature of the universe. But what we call our ego is something abstract, which is to say it has the same order and kind of reality as an hour or an inch or a pound or a line of longitude. It is for purposes of discussion. It is for convenience. 
In other words, it is a social convention that we have what is called an ego. But the fallacy that all of us make is that we treat it as if it were a physical organ, as if it were real in that sense, when in fact it is composed on the one hand of our image of ourselves, that is our idea of ourselves, as when we say to somebody, you must improve your image. Now, this image of ourselves is obviously not ourselves, any more than an idea of a tree is a tree, any more than you can get wet in the word water. And to go on with, our image of ourselves is extremely inaccurate and incomplete. Would that some God, the gifted, gives to see ourselves as others see us. We don't. So my image of me is not at all your image of me. And my image of me is extremely incomplete in that it does not include any information to speak of about the functioning of my nervous system, my circulation, my metabolism, my subtle relationships with the entire surrounding human and non-human universe. So the image I have of myself is a caricature. It is arrived at through, mainly, my interaction with other people who tell me who I am in various ways, either directly or indirectly, and I play about with what their picture is of me, and they play something back to me so that we set up this conception. And this started very, very early in life. And I was told, you see, and you were told, that we must have a consistent image. You must be you. You have to find your identity in terms of image. And this is an awful red herring. A lot of the current quest for identity among younger people is a search for an acceptable image. What role can I play? Who am I in the sense of what am I going to do in life, and so on. Now, while that has a certain importance, if it's not backed up by deeper matters, it's extraordinarily misleading. So therefore, on the one hand, there is this image, which is intellectual, emotional, imaginative, and so forth. Now, we would say, I don't feel that I am only an image, I feel there's something more real than that because I feel, I mean, I have a sense of there being a particular sort of, how do we say, a center of something, some sort of sensitive core inside the skin. And that corresponds to the word I. Let's take a look at this. Because the thing that we feel as being myself is certainly not the whole body. Because a lot of the body can be seen as an object. In other words, if you stand, stretch yourself out, lie on the floor and turn your head and look at yourself, you know, you can see your feet and your legs 
and all this up to here, and finally it all vanishes, only there's a sort of a vague nose in front. And you assume you have a head because everybody else does, and you've looked in a mirror, and that told you you had a head, but you could never see it, just like you can't see your back. So you tend to put your ego on the side of the unseen part of the body, the part you can't get at, because that seems to be where it all comes from, and you feel it. But what is it that we feel? Because if I see clearly, and my eyes are in functioning order, the eyes certainly are not conscious of themselves. There are no spots in front of them, no defects, in other words, in the lens or in the retina or in the optic nerves that give hallucinations. So also, therefore, if my ego, my consciousness, is working properly, I ought not to be aware of it as something sort of there, being a nuisance in a way, in the middle of things, because your ego is awfully hard to take care of. <laughs> well, what is it then that we feel? Well, I think I've discovered what it is. It's a chronic, habitual sense of muscular strain which we were taught in the whole process of doing spontaneous things to order. When you're taking off in a jet plane and the thing has gone rather further down the runway than you think it should have without getting up in the air, you start pulling at your seatbelt. Get this thing off the ground. Perfectly useless. So in the same way, when our community tells us, look carefully, now listen, pay attention, we start using muscular strains around our eyes, ears, jaws, hands, to try to use our muscles to make our nerves work, which is of course futile. And in fact, it gets in the way of the functioning of the nerves. Try to concentrate. And then when we try to control our emotions, we hold our breath, pull our stomachs in, or tighten our rectal muscles to hold ourselves together. Now, pull yourself together! Immediately, what are you to do? What does a child understand by that? He does it muscularly, pulls himself together. This is useless. So everybody chronically pulls themselves together so that it's so funny if you get a person to just lie on the floor and relax. But there's the floor under you as firm as can be holding you up. Nevertheless, you will detect that the person is making all sorts of tensions lest he should suddenly turn into a nasty jello on the floor. <laughs> so that chronic tension, which in Sanskrit is called sankocha, which means contraction, is the root of what we call the feeling of the ego. So that, in other words, this feeling of tightness is the physical referent for the psychological image of ourselves. So that we get the ego as the marriage of an illusion to a futility. Even though the idea of an I with a name, with a being, is naturally useful, or social communication, provided we know what we're doing and take it for what it is. But we are so hung up on this concept 
that it confuses us even in the proposition that it might be possible for us to feel otherwise. Because we ask the question, if we hear about people who have uh, transcended the ego, well, we ask, how do you do that? Well, I say, what do you mean? You, how do you do that? Because the you you're talking about doesn't exist. So you can't do anything about it. Any more than you can cut a cheese with a line of longitude. <laughs> now that sounds very discouraging, doesn't it? But let's suppose now you are babies again. And you don't know anything. Now, don't be frightened, because anything you know you can get back later. But for the time being, here is our awareness. And let's suppose you have no information about this at all and no words for it. And that my talking to you is just a noise. Now, don't try to do anything about this. Don't make any effort. Because naturally, by force of habit, certain tensions remain inside you and certain ideas and words drift all the time through your mind. Just like um, the wind blows or clouds move across the sky. Don't bother with them at all. Don't try to get rid of them. Just be aware of what's going on in your head like it was clouds in the sky or the crackling of the fire. There's no problem to this. All you have to do, really, is look and listen without naming, and if you are naming, never mind. Just listen to that. Now, that you can't force anything here, that you can't willfully stop thinking and stop naming, is only telling you that the separate you doesn't exist. It isn't a mark of defeat. It isn't a sign of your lack of practice in meditation. That it runs on all by itself simply means that the individual separate you is a figment of your imagination. So you are aware at this point of a happening. Remember, you don't know anything about the difference between you and it. You haven't been told that. You've no words for the difference between inside and outside, between here and there, and nobody has taught you that what you see out in front of you is either near or far from 
your eyes. Watch a baby put out a finger to touch the moon. You don't know about that. You just, therefore, here it is. We'll just call it this. And if you will feel it, the going on, which includes absolutely everything you feel, Well, whatever that is, it's what the Chinese call Tao, what Buddhists call suchness or Tathata. And it's a happening. It doesn't happen to you, because where is that? You, what you call you, is part of the happening, <laughs> or an aspect of it has no parts, it's not like a machine. And it's a little scary because you'd say, well, who's in control around here? Why should there be anyone? Now, that's an, a very weird notion we have that processes require something outside them to control them. It never occurred to us that processes could be self-controlling even though we say to someone, control yourself. We can always, in order to think about self-control, we split a person in two. So that there's a you separate from the self that's supposed to be controlled. Well, how can that achieve anything? How can a noun start a verb? Yet it's a fundamental superstition that that can be done. So you have this process which is quite spontaneous, going on. We call it life. It's controlling itself. It's aware of itself. It's aware of itself through you. You are an aperture through which the universe looks at itself. And because of it's the universe looking at itself through you, there's always an aspect of itself that it can't see. So it is like that snake, you see, that is pursuing its tail. Because the snake can't see its head, like you can't. We always find, as we investigate the universe, make the microscope bigger and bigger, and we will find ever more minute things. Make the telescope bigger and bigger and bigger, and the universe expands because it's running away from itself. It won't do that if you don't chase it. <laughs> So, it's a game of hide-and-seek. Really, when you ask the question, who is doing the chasing, you are still working under the assumption that every verb has to have a subject. 
that when there is an action, there has to be a doer. Well, that's a, what I would call a grammatical convention leading to what Whitehead called the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Like the famous it in It Is Raining. So when you say, there cannot be knowing without a knower, this is merely saying, no more than there can't be a verb without a subject. And that's a grammatical rule and not a law of nature. Anything you can think of as a thing, as a noun, can be described by a verb. And there are languages which do that. It sounds awkward in English, but face it, when you look for doers as distinct from deeds, you can't find them. Just as when you look for stuff underlying the patterns of nature, you can't find any stuff, you just find more and more patterns. There never was any stuff. It's a ghost. What we call stuff is simply patterns seen out of focus. And it's fuzzy. So we call it stuff. <laughs> you know, like that K-pop. <laughs> so, you know, we have these words, energy, matter, being, reality, even Tao. And we can never find them. They always elude us entirely. Although we do have the very strong intuition that all this that we see is connected or related. So we speak of a universe. Although that word really means one turn. It's your turn now. <laughs> or like you make one turn to look at yourself. But you can't make two turns and see what's looking. <laughs> So, it's very simple, therefore. You only have to understand that you can't do anything about it. And as they say in Zen, you cannot take hold of it, but you can't get rid of it. And in not being able to get it, you get it. So, all these trials that gurus put their students through have as their ultimate object convincing you that you can't do anything. Only it's convincing you very thoroughly. It's convincing you in more than a theoretical way. Now perhaps I shouldn't tell you that. But you see, I'm not a guru in that I don't give individual spiritual direction to people. And I give away the guru's tricks. That may not be very good, but on the other hand, those tricks are only necessary in the sense that I would say to someone, it's necessary for you to go to a psychiatrist if you think you must. And if you are not going to be satisfied without going to Japan and studying Zen Buddhism from a Roshi, okay, you better go. It isn't necessary unless you say it is. 
if that's the only thing that will satisfy you and you feel that deep down inside you. If you've got that yen, therefore you've got that yen. But if on the other hand you haven't, you haven't. And I'm not going to put you down on that account, you see. The point is, what do you want to do? What is it in you to do? But there it is, that you can struggle and struggle and struggle, and indeed will do so, as long as you have the feeling inside you that you're missing something. And people, your friends, all sorts of people will do their utmost to persuade you that you're missing something. <laughs> because they're missing something, and they think they're getting it through a certain way. And therefore, to assure themselves, they'd like you to do it too. So there's this thing. And you see, a clever guru beguiles his students by letting them have the feeling of success and accomplishment in certain directions. A guru gives people exercises, A, that are difficult but can be accomplished, and B, that are impossible. You'll always be hung up on the impossible ones, but the possible ones you will feel, get a feeling of making progress so that you will double your efforts to solve the impossible exercises. And then they range things in many, many ranks and levels through which you can advance. This state of consciousness, that state of consciousness, or think of the degrees of masonry, or so on. Ranks in learning things, the different belts you get in judo and all that kind of jazz. You can do that. And it gives people the sense of competing with themselves or even with others. Because of the feeling inside that there is just something I'm missing. And of course, if you are learning any sort of skill and you haven't perfected the skill, there is indeed something you're missing. But in this thing that we're talking about, that isn't true. Because you, as the Buddhists say, are Buddhas from the very beginning. And all that searching is like looking for your own head, which you can't see and therefore might conceivably imagine that you're lost. So, that indeed is the point, that we don't see what looks, and therefore we think we've lost it. And so we're in search of the self, the Atman. Well, that's the one thing we can't find, <laughs> because we have it. We are it. <laughs> but we confuse it with all these images. So therefore, if you understand perfectly clearly that you can't do anything to find that very, very important thing, God, enlightenment, nirvana, whatever, then what? Well, I find, you know, it's so stupid because even if I tell myself, well, there's nothing I can do about it, why did I say that? 
You see? Why did I say that? Why did I go out of my way to tell myself there's nothing I can do about it? Because in the back of my mind there was a funny little feeling that if I did tell myself that, something different would happen. See? All right. So even that doesn't work. Nothing works. Now, when absolutely nothing works, where are you? Well, here we are. I mean, you know, there's this feeling of something going on. Now, the world doesn't stop dead when there's nothing you can do. There's something happening. Now, just there, that's what I'm talking about. There's the happening. When you are not doing anything about it, you're not not doing anything about it, you just can't help it. It goes on despite anything you think or worry about or whatever. Now, there is the point. Right there. And remember, although you will think at first that this is a kind of determinism, there are two reasons why it isn't. One, there is nobody being determined. Now, other people think of determinism as the direction of what happens by the past, the causation of what happens by the past. Now, if you will use your senses, you will see that that is a hallucination. The present does not come from the past. If you listen, and only listen, close your eyes, where do the sounds come from, according to your ears? You hear them coming out of silence. The sounds come and then they fade off. They go like echoes, or echoes in the labyrinths of your brain, which we call memories. The sounds don't come from the past. They come out of now and trail off. You can do that later with your eyes. You can see, like when you're watching television, there's a vibration coming out from the screen to your eyes. And it starts from there somehow. Because we see the hands and then they move, we think that the movement is caused by the hands and that the hands were there before and so can move later. We don't see that our memory of the hands is an echo of their always being now. They never were. They never will be. They're always now. So is the motion. And that, that is recollected is the trailing off echo like the wake of a ship. And so just as the wake doesn't move the ship, the past does not move the present, unless you insist that it does. And if you say, well, naturally, I'm always moved by the past, that's an alibi. <laughs> and it completely fails to explain how you ever learn anything new. <laughs> that's why all the psychologists who are mostly behaviorists are completely bogged down in trying to find a theory of learning. Because according to the, the theory of learning that we have, everything that new that you assimilate is really only learned when 
translated into terms of what you already know. So, in that sense, learning becomes like a library which increases only by the addition of books about books already in it. <laughs> a lot of libraries are indeed like that. So, that's what we call scholasticism. So then, you become aware that this happening isn't happening to you because you are the happening. The only you there is, is what's going on. Yeah, feel it. And disregard these stupid distinctions that you've been taught. I mean, stupid, relatively speaking. And feel it genuinely. When you feel it genuinely, you get down to rock bottom, all that isn't there. That's a game that's been erected on it. And it isn't determined. In other words, you get this odd feeling of a synthesis between doing and happening, in which doing is as much happening as happening, and happening is as much doing as doing. And if you are not very careful at that point, you'll proclaim yourself God Almighty in the Hebrew Christian sense. Like Freud alleges, babies feel that they're omnipotent. And in a way they are. I am omnipotent insofar as I'm the universe. But I'm not I'm omnipotent in the role of Alan Watts. Only cunning. <laughs> <laughs> so now then, this sensation of the happening is basic to all we want to explore. With that in mind, we can go on now to the question of pain and our so-called reactions to it. And once again you will see that the problem as posed immediately sets up the duality of the pain and the one who suffers it. <coughs> the one who offers resistance. And therefore, reasoning from that, you can quite easily see that a great deal of the energy of pain is derived from the resistance offered to it. And that resistance takes very many forms, not only of attempts to get away from a pain which is present. Let's suppose you tried to run away from a migraine headache. As you carry it with you, you can't get away from it, and it seems to be absolutely in the middle of everything that you are. So that however much you thresh, and resist, the pain goes with the threshing. Other forms of pain are problematic to a large extent because of our prior anxiety about them, and because of the valuations that we put on them. 
and we may as well start from that point. And what we very largely dislike about people in pain is the noise they make. When I challenged R.H. Blythe and said, you're a vegetarian, but don't you realize that plants have feelings? He said, yes, I do, but they don't scream so loudly. And so, uh, you say, in a hospital or any place like that, it is taboo to scream because you must understand that hospitals and any institution of that kind is run for the convenience of the staff. <laughs> All institutions are. <laughs> and so, everything is done in such a way as to interiorize, localize pain because in a way that makes it worse. So we have a big, big social problem, fundamental, right from the beginning, about our reaction to anything painful. And these are very odd things. Let's take, for example, when a child has eaten something that doesn't agree with it and it vomits. Now, you well know that when you've got a bad stomach, that vomiting is a very pleasant release from that. But because when mama sees the vomit, or somebody else does, they say, ugh, you are taught that doing it is socially unacceptable, and therefore people suppress vomiting. and learn from their parents that it's nasty, just as they learn that excrement is nasty, and just as they learn to worry about disease and death. Now, there really isn't anything radically wrong with being sick or with dying. Who said you're supposed to survive? Who gave you the idea that it's a gas to go on and on and on? <laughs> and we can't say that it's a good thing for everything to go on living from the very simple demonstration that if we enable everybody to go on living, we overcrowd ourselves. That we're like an unpruned tree. And so, therefore, uh, one person who dies, in a way, is honorable because he's making room for others. And the panic that all life everywhere must be saved, although each one of us individually will naturally appreciate it when anybody saves our life, if we apply that case, you see, all around, we can see that it's not workable. We can also look further into it and see that if our death could be indefinitely postponed, we would not actually go on postponing it indefinitely. 
because after a certain point we would realize that that isn't the way in which we wanted to survive. Why else would we have children? Because children arrange for us to survive in another way. By, as it were, passing on a torch so that you don't have to carry it all the time. There comes a point where you can give it up and say, now you work. It's a far more amusing arrangement for nature to continue the process of life through different individuals than it is always with the same individual. Because as each new individual approaches life, life is renewed. And one remembers how fascinating the most ordinary everyday things are to a child. Because they see them all as marvelous, because they see them all in a way that is not related to survival and profit. And when we get to thinking of everything in terms of survival and profit value, as we do, then the shapes of scratches on the floor cease to have magic. And most things, in fact, cease to have magic. So therefore, in the course of nature, once we have ceased to see magic in the world anymore, we are no longer fulfilling nature's game of being aware of itself. There's no point in it anymore. And so we die. And so something else comes to birth, which gets an entirely new view. And so nature's self-awareness is a game worth the candle. It is not, therefore, natural for us to wish to prolong life indefinitely. But we live in a culture where it has been rubbed into us in every conceivable way that to die is a terrible thing. And that is a tremendous disease from which our culture in particular suffers. And we notice it firstly in the way in which death is swept under the carpet. This is one of the major problems in hospital work. When a family conspires with the doctor to keep from grandmother the knowledge that she is dying. Grandmother suspects that she is dying but probably doesn't really want to know for sure. And her family talk with her in such a way as to say, well, it'll be, you, you, you'll probably be getting all right in a few weeks. And won't it be nice to be able to do this, that, and the other, uh, because they have this funny feeling that it's important to build up courage and hope. And so they become liars and a mutual mistrust develops. Uh, because once you are playing the game on that level, you tend to play the mistrust on other levels. And so the person is left to die alone, suddenly, unprepared, and doped up 
to the point where death hardly happens. And there is no derivation from it of the peculiar spiritual experience that can come with death. Back in 1958, I was in Zurich and there met a most extraordinary man by the name of Karlfried von Dürkheim. He was a former German diplomat who had studied Zen in Japan. And when he came back after the war, he opened a meditation school and retreat in the Black Forest. And he said, well, I tell you what, a lot of my work has to do with people who went through spiritual crises during the war. And he said, you know, uh, we, we all know that when a person's in an absolutely extreme situation, and they accept it. There is a possibility of a natural satori. And that's what I mean when I was explaining that when one gets to an extreme, that is to say, to the point where you realize that there is nothing you can do about life, nothing you cannot do about life, then you're the mosquito biting the iron bull. Well, so in the same way, he said, look, you heard a bomb coming at you. You could hear it whistle. And you knew it was right above you and headed straight at you and that you were finished. And you accepted it. And suddenly, there was a strange feeling that everything is absolutely clear. You suddenly see that there isn't a grain of dust in the whole universe that's in the wrong place. That you understand completely, absolutely, totally what it's all about. Because you can't say what it is. But he said, in so many cases, the bomb was a dud and they lived to tell the tale. Or he said, you were in a concentration camp. You've been there so long that you gave up all hope whatsoever, ever getting out. You were just going through this miserable, boring, degrading grind, week after week after week. Nobody paid the slightest attention to you as an individual. You knew you would never get out, and you accepted it. And suddenly, something changed. This extraordinary feeling of freedom. Or he said, you were a displaced refugee. You had lost your family. You didn't know whether they even existed. You were miles from your home. You didn't know whether it existed. You had lost your job, your very identity. You were absolutely nowhere, and you accepted it. And suddenly, you were as light as a feather and free as the air. Now, he said, so many people have had those experiences, and they talk about them to their families and friends, and they say, oh, well, you were under terrific pressure, and you probably had some hallucination, you know? Well, he said, I am showing those people that... So far from having a hallucination, those were the few, few occasions in which they woke up. So, you see, this is always the opportunity presented by death. 
that if one can go into death with eyes open and have somebody help you if necessary to give up before you die, this extraordinary thing can happen to you. So that from your standpoint, in that position, at that time, you would say, I wouldn't have missed that opportunity for the world. Now I understand why we die. The reason we die is to give us the opportunity to understand what life's all about. By letting go. Because then we come to a situation that the ego can't deal with. When we are no longer hypnotized by that, then our natural consciousness can see clearly what all this universe is for. So, therefore, we have missed this golden opportunity by institutionalizing death out of the way instead of having a socially understood acceptance of death and rejoicing in death. Now, I could imagine that uh, one person would want to rejoice in death in an entirely different way from another. Like, um, say, a wedding is a rite of passage. Uh, there are certainly some forms of celebrating a wedding which I would find a total bore and quite offensive. Other ways would be very good. I would enjoy it. So everybody, in other words, I'm not saying that you've got to get mixed up with a lot of people coming, laughing around you and giving you presents and cards and everything because you're going to die. <laughs> but I'm only indicating a general thing, that the doctor, the the, the ministers, the psychiatrists, and above all, us, really owe it to our friends to work out an entirely new approach to death. Because what has happened, you see, from earliest childhood, the child learned that great-uncle was dying and saw the family put on long faces and say, oh, that's too bad. Even Christians who think they're going to go to heaven you know, they get absolutely morbid, more so than anybody else about death, because heaven, as they all know, is a very boring place. <laughs> and so, this frightful thing, oh, he's dead, you know. Now one understands that for the living, to lose someone you love, or even for a dying person to worry about what on earth my wife, my children, my whatever are going to do without me. One can understand a certain worry in that. But nobody is indispensable. And there comes a point when you have to say, I'm sorry, but I am completely going to abandon responsibility for anything because there is no further way I can do it. This is another way of that surrender. And then the curious thing that occurs is the moment all that has dropped, suddenly it dawns on you. That to be important, existence does not have to go on any longer than a moment. Quantitative continuity is of no value. 
How long can you hold your breath? Who cares? <laughs> so, it follows from that, you see, that if any one of us, without being shocked into it by being bombed or put in a concentration camp, could at this moment be as one about to die, genuinely and honestly, we would understand the mystery of life. Because death is the, is it, in a certain sense, the source of life. Just as we see in nature, when the leaves fall from the trees, they mold and rot, and this supplies humus from which more plants can grow. It's a cycle like that. But in every way, symbolic and otherwise, human beings try to stop that cycle. Unamuno said, human beings are the only species that hoard their dead. And therefore, with the ghastly art of the mortician, we try to make the body unpalatable to the worms, and so to stop life, as if to be eaten in due course were an indignity to the human being, whereas we eat everything else and we give nothing back. So that is a kind of a social symptom of our profound disorientation with respect to death. We think death is unnatural and, furthermore, in our culture we think birth is a disease and send a mama to the hospital for the most unnatural, weird kind of parturition. In other words, more and more one regards the healthy and inevitable and natural transformations of the body as pathological. I can imagine, you know, people having sexual intercourse on an operating table to be sure that the whole thing is hygienic. <laughs> you know, uh, the, everything about us like that is, is, is become over interfered with by specialists and less and less the province of our own preferences. It's very, very hard indeed to die in your own way without some blasted bunch of relatives come fussing around and insisting that you go to a hospital, that you get fixed with the tortures of being fed through tubes and things to keep you alive indefinitely and waste the family savings. It's even a crime to commit suicide. Now, this is sim simply nonsense. It's this perfect panic to survive at all costs. Now, let's get practical. You say, okay, I understand what you are saying theoretically. But I know that I would be terrified if somebody was going to tell me that I'm going to die. And that I would look frantically around for some doctor, some sort of something, that this panic to live is in us in an uncontrollable way, and this is part of the reason why we say we have an instinct to survive. The instinct is this panic. So let's take another step now 
in the same way as I showed you steps about realizing that you don't have an ego. You say to yourself in the ordinary way, when you feel that panic, you feel a bit ashamed of it. Even though you've been taught that you should do everything possible to survive. See what a bind you're in here? So one feels, oh goodness, I must face this thing calmly and bravely and not be in this panic. But the point of the fact is, you are in a panic and you can't stop it. Now that's very important. Because this is another way of showing you the same thing that death is showing you, that you can't do anything about it. Just as when you finally realize you can't do anything about the death, you could have solved all that before by understanding you couldn't do anything about the panic. But if you think all the time, I'm supposed to stop this panic, then all that happens is you're at cross-purposes with yourself again. The panic is, of course, put off in the ordinary way. We all know we're going to die. But it's sufficiently far off so that we can put it out of our minds. And anybody who does put it into our minds in the ordinary way is taken to be a skeleton at the banquet, a Cassandra, and gloomy. So that the old-fashioned preacher of bygone days who preached about death and those monks who kept skulls on their desks and uh, all that sort of thing is regarded today as very morbid. Why, in the Baroque times, there was a fashion for a while of making tombstones with marvelous sculptures of skeletons and bones all over them. And on the Via Veneto in Rome, there is a capuchin church where down in the crypt there are chapels made where the altar furnishings and everything are made entirely from the bones of departed monks. Then we have in among Tibetans and in Buddhists graveyard meditations. And they have trumpets in Tibetan Buddhism made of human thigh bones. And they have cups, ritual cups, made of the domes of human skulls, richly worked in silver and turquoise. And we say all that is very morbid. So, from this point of view, you can see, first of all, theoretically, how death can solve its own problem. Now, if you say, I can only see it theoretically, and I can't go the whole way with you, then I will ask you, what is blocking you? Well, you say, it gives me the heebie-jeebies and the horrors. I say, all right, so death is not the problem, the heebie-jeebies is the problem. So let's deal with the heebie-jeebies in the same way as with death. You cannot stop the heebie-jeebies. You think you should. I say, don't. The heebie-jeebies are very valuable. Not that they will stop you from dying, but because from them you will learn the same thing as you would learn from dying. But the social pressure on you to resist the heebie-jeebies is terrific. 
Now, why must you do that? Why is everybody saying these heebie-jeebies, these fears, etc., are not permissible? You wonder about that. And the reasoning behind all that is not very clear because it seems to be saying, well, if you have all these fears and things like that, you, you won't be a very good soldier. You won't be able to act competently in a crisis. You'll get the heebie-jeebies instead and you won't know what to do. Well, nobody has ever really proved that. Because actually, people who we would call very courageous are, in fact, often quite frightened. And courageous action is not necessarily a consequence of having no fear. Sometimes it might be, but it isn't always so. The real reason why the heebie-jeebies are suppressed has more to do with its orgiastic aspects. Wherever the human organism gets into a certain kind of extreme, it starts an oscillating process going. Just as it does in sexual orgasm. And that oscillating process will inspire in others an emotion which they cannot identify either as disgust or as lust. They don't know quite what it is. All those extreme situations, terror, and as we shall see more, response to pain, have an orgiastic quality. And they are therefore embarrassing because they conflict with our image of ourselves as in control, composed, deported. <laughs> That's in the sense of deportment. <laughs> but uh, it would be shameful in a way you, you might not want to look at your own face in a state of complete sexual rapture. As a matter of fact, if you saw a photograph of your face, you wouldn't be able to tell whether you were in pleasure or in pain. It might be either. Because then, you see, what has happened is that a tide, a vibration, a pulsation, has taken over the whole being. So that you are, as it were, in the possession of a god. And that's something taboo. So we begin here to move into a very difficult area. Because a lot of people were beginning to say, this conversation is getting out of line because we are moving into what are normally called 
perverse experiences. And the two critical forms of perverse experience are sadism and masochism. Where there is the association of pain and ecstasy. In sadism, the confusion of another person's suffering with that person's sexual orgasm. In masochism, the identification, or if you want to say confusion, of your own suffering with sexual orgasm. Now we say, well, that's, that's pathological, that's absurd. But it exists. People do it all the time, both ways, and sometimes both together. And although this is generally put under the heading of pathology, the fact remains that we can still learn something from it. There's an important principle in there. Somehow, somewhere. And perhaps in people who are sadists and masochists, the phenomenon is somehow out of hand because they don't understand the principle. Now, do you realize many sadists want nothing more than that their victim should enjoy the pain? The combination sadist and masochist is perfect. And many sadists would be quite reluctant if the victim really didn't like participating in this at all. And so there's the joke of the masochist asking the sadist to beat him, and he says, I won't. <laughs> but what happens here is that pain and the attendant convulsive behavior of the organism is associated with the erotic. A different value is given to the same symptoms, as, say, it is common in France to get a young woman really aroused, you know, and she will say, Chimwa, Chimwa, kill me, kill me, as if to know, to go as far as you can in throwing yourself away to somebody else, you know, do anything you want to. And in that abandon, you see, there is the possibility that this, an undulation of feeling, which is total orgiastic feeling, may take over. And in that feeling, you see, you are one with what is happening completely. And that's what everybody, as it were, finally aspires to. So, therefore, the masochist in particular is a person who has learned throughout life to defend himself against pain by eroticizing pain. Now, do you understand how, therefore, different valuations can be put on one and the same vibration? 
we see, don't we, all that we experience is understandable as a spectrum of vibrations. There are different kinds of spectra. There's the spectrum of light, there's the spectrum of sound. We can also think of spectra of smells, of tactile feelings, of emotions, and so on, all down the line. We are, as it were, living in the midst of a woven tapestry of many dimensions in which the warps and the woofs are all these different spectra of various kinds of vibrations. And as on the loom, the warp crosses the woof, and if you didn't have one, you wouldn't have the other. It takes two to reveal the pattern. So see yourselves as patterns in a weaving system. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for the interlocking of all these different spectra of dimensions. So then, here they go, and these things are vibrating. Now, when it reaches a certain point, you say, oh, that's too much. And when it reaches another point, you say, it's not enough. Why, there's nothing here. I don't feel a thing. No, I'm going to go to sleep. But on the other end, you say, no, 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 you're going far enough. If you go any further, that's going to tear things apart. I can't withhold this tension, see? Now, so some people will say, all right, now, now relax, 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 take it easy, take it easy. But often you see the point is you can't do that. So then what I would say to the person who cannot relax, I will stress his tension. Go the other way. In other words, go with the line of least resistance. Say, okay, you're tense about all this. Now let's say, really tense. Let's scream, no, 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 no. See, you get violent inside. This is not to happen, see? But so that one way or the other, you see, it doesn't matter which you go, you begin to get into this thing, which is what is happening when the boat of life begins really to rock. Get rocking with it by whatever way is open. But you are not going to force the issue here. Instead of saying to you, you should be doing it another way than you're doing it, I will be saying, now find out the way you must do it. And go that way. Now this is a general principle of an art. And we will find there is a kind of, uh, there are limits to this art and uh, how it can be used and so forth. But once the general principles are clear, there aren't many serious problems left. That if you begin to look at it in that way, you will begin to realize that ecstasy by one road or another is inevitable. That indeed ecstasy is in a way the nature of existence. There is a universe for the simple reason that it's ecstatic. What else is all this fireworks about? It, it is just like music in this ecstatic thing going off. And you have to be certainly careful in a little way here that any initiation into a deep wisdom is apt at first to demotivate you. 
You think, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and all these projects and building this up and that up and doing something to save the world and so on and so forth. Well, why, that whole thing is nonsense. Yes. If you stick there, that's what they call in Mahayana Buddhism, the Pratyeka Buddha. That means the private Buddha, as distinct from Bodhisattva, who comes back into everyday life, as they say, for the liberation of all other sentient beings. Because when you know that uh, all this is all right anyway, and that the situation is inevitable ecstasy. I mean, you're going to get it one way or another. <laughs> and you say, well, what was all the fuss about, you know? The fact remains that a lot of people just don't know that and are really hating life, not knowing how to handle hate. And if you are at a certain point, you know those other people are you. They're like, you had an extended body and all these were nerve ends on the end of it, you see. However, you know also that you can't really show them anything they don't already know and won't be able to show them anything else until they know it. <laughs> but then the question what shall I do has now disappeared it should have disappeared in the beginning because there wasn't any real I there was just the happening and so that question brings us back again to the experience itself, see? And that's the only way that you can answer the question is from the experience. You could say, what would happen if? The answer is only, you must feel it, then you will know. And the people who hear about this and say, well, wouldn't that, I mean, wouldn't everybody become uh, totally callous and impassive? What, how can you assure me that that wouldn't happen? I say, I can't. But you must get into this state, and then you'll find out. There's just no you to get into it anyway. <laughs> <laughs>presents Out of Your Mind, Essential Listening, from the Alan Watts Audio Archives. Session 6, The Inevitable Ecstasy, Part 2, with Alan Watts.
I was making a basic comparison between the state of consciousness of a baby and that of a so-called mature adult. respectively what we would call undifferentiated and differentiated. The adult consciousness being highly selective and the baby consciousness being very open and hardly selective at all and therefore unable to distinguish what adults consider to be the important things which have to do with the conventions and rules that the positive aspects, whether they be called good or pleasant or life-giving and so on, must prevail over the negative aspects. And I went on to show that this contrast between the two views of the world has another marked characteristic that in the case of the baby who hasn't been trained or told about the difference between himself and all that is defined as other than himself doesn't distinguish between voluntary behavior and involuntary occurrence And, of course, we think this is a very fundamental defect. But if we go back, you see, to a principle that underlies the whole universe with a kind of mathematical exactitude, we see that if we reduce things to the situation of primal simplicity, and we have a primordial self and other situation, that is to say, two balls in space. There is absolutely no way of telling when they move which one of them is moving or which one is still. They must necessarily appear to move mutually. There's no point of reference except each other to determine which is moving and which is still. Now, everything that goes on in the universe is simply a complication of that principle. Because the same thing holds true if you multiply the number of balls. You will see that that primordial principle, that all movement is mutual, still applies. And therefore, the baby's failure to distinguish between the voluntary and the involuntary, the I and the other, is in a way correct. Psychologists, psychoanalysts in particular, make a great deal of this contrast and consider that the baby's view is inferior to the adult's. And if an adult should acquire that view in psychoanalysis, this would be called regression. The point that is missed is that the two ways of looking at things need each other to balance out and that one needs the baby's view as a basis 
for the adult view, because if you don't have it, you take the adult view too seriously. Get completely carried away by it. And that would be analogous to a person who, in playing poker, loses his nerve because he doesn't realize it's only a game. And so he becomes a very bad player. In exactly the same way, we in life are only playing a game. But because we didn't keep the baby view, we can't see it. So what we would call a Buddha view is one that knows both. And therefore is not taken in by the adult games, although perfectly capable of playing them, but insofar as they are not regarded as finally and absolutely serious, he is not captivated by them. Now, therefore, one asks the question, that sounds very interesting, but how do I recapture the baby point of view? And I showed that that was the wrong question, because it arises entirely and exclusively out of the adult point of view. Because the adult point of view involves the fiction that I exist as an agent independently of everything else that's going on. And so ask, how can I do this? And the important thing is to realize that the feeling of there being this isolated I is part of the game and it has no fundamental reality except as a convention. And so long as that isn't clear, we're confused. I reiterated the point that when we ask to whom must it become clear or to whom is it not clear, that this too was all part of the illusion of the world that the adult presents to the child. So the only way in which the child's vision can come again is in the realization that the I can't do anything about it at all and can't even do nothing about it. All possibilities of vision for what we call I myself are out. And this, and of course, is the same meaning that the Christian or the Islamic mystics would say, that the mystical experience is the gift of God, and there's nothing you can do to get it. That's a clumsy way, really, of saying the same thing. Because so long as you are trying or not trying, you are aggravating the sensation of the separate ego.
Now, that in itself, you see, as I talk about it, presents a certain difficulty. Or one thinks it's difficult. There would be a second difficulty if we were to go on and say, it isn't only the illusion of the ego, but the whole valuation system that we put on the complexity of vibrations we call awareness of life, all the various valuations that are put on this by the social game are maya, that is to say they are illusory, basically. Because it's only in play, as it were, that we say this is good and this is bad, this is advantageous, this is disadvantageous. And so we would go on to say after this, but I cannot imagine anything more difficult than overcoming that hypnosis. I am so enchanted by this system that the idea of treating it as not really very serious seems to me unthinkable. Of course, you have to think that. It's like a hypnotist working on somebody and saying, you are not going to remember any of this conversation after you come to. And so he's put the suggestion into you that you forget the whole thing. So in the same way, the suggestion has been put into all of us that these rules that we have learned are sacrosanct. And that we, they don't say you will not be able to think otherwise. They say they are true. They are the truth. You see? And that is the same function as the hypnotic suggestion put into us ever since we were receptive children. So naturally... It's all part of the conspiracy which we are playing on ourselves. We can't blame our parents for this because their parents played it on them and they bought it. And don't forget that time goes backwards. You see? <laughs> you can't blame this on the past because now in the present you are creating the, value, the values of the past and you are buying them all along, see? So there's no, no out on this. You see, in a way, psychoanalytically, one is given an out by saying, well, the parents didn't bring up their children properly. And American people are consumed with guilt about the way they, they bring up their children. So we must abandon completely the notion of blaming the past for any kind of situation we're in and reverse our thinking and see that the past always flows back from the present that now is the creative point of life. And so, you see, uh, it's, it's like the idea of forgiving somebody. Uh, you change the meaning of the past by doing that. It's like also the, when you watch the flow of music. The melody, as it is expressed, is changed by notes that come later. Just as the meaning of a sentence, especially, say, take German or Latin, 
where there's the convention of placing a verb at the end of a sentence. You wait, in other words, till later to find out what the sentence means, according to our way of feeling it. So it is also in our language, if I say I love you, you don't know when I've said I, what I is doing. I could say I hate you. So we don't know until later. So in other words, the word love or the word hate changes the function of the word I. And then I was going to say, I love flowers. No, but I love you, you see? And so the word later changes the meaning of those that go before. The present is always changing the past. So, when you get the idea in your mind that the point of view I'm talking about is very difficult indeed to acquire, that idea is one you are putting there to stop yourself seeing the other point of view. And above all, you must not take that seriously. It is simply a method of postponing seeing the point now. So you have to see it now or never, because there is only now. If you say, well, tomorrow, the next day, maybe in another dozen lifetimes, I'll be ready. That means, simply and solely, I don't want to be bothered with it now. I'm even not interested in it now, so I've got an excuse for putting it off. Which is fine, that's perfectly okay. <laughs> you can put it off. There is no reason, there is no compulsion why you should come out of this illusion. That's why Oriental people do not tend, in the same way as Westerners, to be missionaries. And saying it's very urgent that you be saved. It isn't, unless you say so. I mean, unless you are so disturbed by the suffering and the problem of suffering that you've got to find some sort of escape. But if you don't want to, you can stay there. It's okay, there's lots of time. And maybe you'll see through it when you die. At least in the moment of death, <laughs> you'll see that it was all a fake. So, don't be scared about the idea of the difficulty of it. That's a red herring and it's quite irrelevant. And I don't think that teachers should talk quite so much about this as they do and saying oh this is going to take a long long time and a lot of practice in many years maybe it will maybe it won't but that's beside the point because it distracts it's like telling somebody that this is a very difficult book to read and it requires immense powers of concentration well that immediately kills your interest in it Instead of if I would say, well, now this is a most extraordinary book. 
It's just so fascinating. I've been working on it for years, and every time I, do, I, get, I just get so involved, I can't drop the thing. Huh? I mean, that's a far more encouraging attitude to a student than, uh, well, it's going to be very difficult, except to very, very self-hating students who uh, somehow perversely enjoy suffering through it. I suppose that's, a, of course, a way too, but... All right, now, if we can see the first part, which is that the ego is purely fictitious, that it is a symbol or image of oneself, plus a sensation of muscular strain occasioned by trying to make this symbol an effective agent to control emotion, to concentrate, to direct the nervous operations of the organism. Then immediately it is clear that what we have called ourselves, what we have thought of as ourselves, isn't able to do anything at all, there follows this kind of silence in which there is nothing to do except watch what happens. But what is happening is watching itself. There is nobody apart from it watching it. And so we get into the state of meditation, or as I prefer to call it, contemplation. So then the next problem that arises is well, what about all the other illusions? Although they are somehow integrated and centered upon the illusion of ego, nevertheless, the whole value system of what is important, what is not important, what is good, what is bad, what is pleasant, what is painful, has to be called in question. Not in order to destroy the whole value system, but in order to see it for what it is. And that's where we will object and say, well, surely that's a colossally difficult task because we are so long habituated to it. And we have been taught to believe that the longer we have been habituated to something, the more difficult it is to change it. And that is true if you believe it. And if you don't, it isn't. <laughs> So that's why it's always emphasized, at any rate in Zen, that when anything is to be done, it should be done immediately, without thinking it over in advance. Act at once. And you'll find that characteristic of people trained in Zen. They always act immediately. They don't uh, say, well, um, uh, mm, well mm, when should we do this sort of thing? They just do it. Because that doesn't build up. It gives no time for the building up of all this reflection of, well, I've done this way for a long time and I really feel kind of draggy about uh, doing it another way. You know, it's like some people eat the same thing every day. And the idea of suddenly eating something else seems absolutely weird. I remember when I used to have lunch in London, in the city of London. I used to go to their rather fancy sandwich bar. And there was a very square young man in a derby hat who ordered exactly the same lunch every day. Fantastic. 
And so it came that the man who served the bar, the moment he saw him coming in at the door, he had it there. <laughs> and he would have had a real qualm if somebody had suggested that instead of having a beef sandwich, he should have a smoked salmon one. <laughs> now then, we get to this. What we are aware of is a complex of vibrations. And we have been conditioned to call them graduatingly good, bad, pleasant, painful. Whereas, as a matter of fact, they are nothing but vibrations. And if you look at any one of them by itself, you won't know where it is. That is to say, if you only know red, you can't see that it's red. You could only know that this is red by contrast with yellow and green and blue and violet. So you don't know that the sound is loud unless you know soft sounds, or you don't know that it's soft unless you know loud. And it is that comparison which gives us the feeling of uh, the spectrum as being varied. Otherwise, we wouldn't know. For example, when you watch television, you are actually seeing a single moving point moving over the screen. But it goes so fast that you see it in all these different places having different values of light. But let us supposing there was someone whose retina was not retentive in this way. He would look at the screen and see the moving point of light and say to human beings, I don't see what you see in this. <laughs> now can we, therefore, get back not only to the situation where we see that the ego is a mere construct, but also where we see that all the values we put on the vibrations are arbitrary. And that we get to a position where we see the vibrations simply as the vibrations. And we would say then, well, surely all this is nonsense, which is correct. <laughs> The universe, I mean, is a kind of badoodida, 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 going on in this fantastic way. This is why music can be used as a meditative technique. Because a lot of music is, in, is, is nonsense. It doesn't mean anything. But it can be very interesting. So can you get back again to recollecting from childhood your pleasure in events that from your present point of view you would call entirely meaningless? That you could 
listen to a sound like a twanging metal and it goes boing, 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 and that's fascinating. Boing. <laughs> it's just boing. And that's, that's all it is. See? Now, if you can really get with boing, See? You can see the whole universe in Boeing. Really. Because every vibration that's possible implies all the others. And so, likewise, with a candle flame, with a reflection, with grain in wood, anything can, from this child point of view be completely fascinating not because it means anything but just for what it is that it is shaped so there was a joke in punch some time ago many years ago i remember of, a, of an army doctor interviewing a private and the private says Every time I shake my leg like this, it hurts. He said, God damn it, don't shake it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when one has something that hurts, there's a subtle temptation to keep worrying it. Like if you have a filling out of a tooth, your tongue plays with the empty hole. And children will experiment with pain in this way. It's like a dare. Children are always playing the game of daring each other to do something forbidden. Because the risk of disapproval involved, the calamity that may follow from it, it makes it so exciting. And why on earth do people challenge disaster the way they do? Doing all sorts of wildly adventurous things. Because obviously that gives a taste, a quality to a vibration that is extremely interesting. Why the craving for speed? So on. And it's only if you look very carefully at a vibration that you can see this point. That's why meditative exercises often involve a repetition process. Om, or saying a phrase, or doing an act like a mudra, over and over and over again. After a while, it becomes meaningless. You can say your own name like the Sufis do, and go on and on and on and on and on, and finally, it doesn't mean anything at all. It's just a noise. But it isn't just a noise, you see. The attitude of saying that something is just a noise or just a, a wiggle is an adult attitude. No wiggle to the child is just a wiggle. To the child, the elemental thing going on is blah. You know, I mean, it's just fantastic. <laughs> Now, do you see why this is what mystics call ineffable? 
That is to say, you can't really talk about it. When I try to explain what I mean by digging a sound, I suddenly realize that I'm not really saying anything. And yet there are states of consciousness in which you can listen to sound and realize that that is the whole point of being alive. Just to go with this particular energy manifestation that is happening right at this moment. To be it. The whole world is the energy playing at doing all this. You see, like a kaleidoscope, jazzing. So if you watch that, and watch it that way, you will be accused, of course, by those who are guardians of the game of doing something very dangerous. But you're going completely crazy. I mean, the number of theological texts I've read which express in one way or another this horror of everything becoming meaningless, the meaningless life, tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Those people, you see, have not dared to look at it. Now, there's another way of looking at it, of course, where in states of acute depression, People see it all as meaningless, but not really meaningless. They see it all as a conspiracy of horror. Let's imagine that everything is mechanical. There are no living beings at all. There are a lot of beings that are such good computers that you can't tell the difference between them and what you thought were people. <laughs> But everything going on is simply clockwork. And uh, there's nobody home, although it puts on a convincing show that there is. So you get the feeling that the entire world is enameled tin or patent leather or plastic and tasteless, hollow, vulgar, like a Wurlitzer jukebox. <laughs> That's a very common feeling of people who get into acute depression. But you see there is still here evaluation. You are associating the world with the mechanical as distinct from the organic. And we have a tendency, you see, to put down the mechanical because obviously a plastic flower doesn't have the scent, it doesn't have the soft feeling of a living flower. Oh, we'll perfume plastic flowers soon. 
But it, it, you know what it'll do. It'll smell vaguely like soap. And it won't smell like a flower. So it'll be plastic smell. Now we know that, you see. And so we contrast it with the organic. In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't, again, we don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary-involuntary, we don't know the contrast organic-mechanical. Neither. So we get to what the Buddhists call tathata, suchness. Tathata, based on the word tat, that, da. Fundamentally, da-da. See? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's what's going on. Well, now this is what happens, you see, in the meditative state. As you are in that, you see everything is da. <laughs> da. And you're not saying anymore, well, that doesn't amount to anything. Because you've learned that when people do take you to the place that does amount to something, eventually it all collapses. The price of being taken to the place seriously, you see, where it really does amount to something, this at last is the real thing. The price you pay for that, you see, is the horrors about its opposite. And to the degree that you take that seriously, okay, you pay the price of the horrors. Now that's as a matter of fact all. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't take it seriously. I mean, to be specific, you are tremendously in love with someone. And you plan and plan and plan how possibly you can get this person to return your love. And they do. And this is the great event. This is fantastic. But that in the background of your mind is the thought that what if this person should be killed or some terrible thing happen? That always lurks behind the triumph of getting it so, of this intense, gorgeous feeling. Now, if you know that this is, in a way, an illusion, you can allow yourself to take it quite seriously, but always having a hintergedanke, a reservation, a thought, way back, this is the game. And having that, as a matter of fact, you can take it seriously, uh, you can allow yourself to get involved in life to the most ridiculous degree. Because you know it's all right. No, it's just these vibrations. And uh, so, wowee, let's, let's really get into it. That is why a person who might be enlightened, a bodhisattva, does not always present a kind of detached and indifferent attitude but is perfectly free to allow emotions, attachments. Why, R.H. Blythe, who was a great Zen man, wrote me once and said, 
How are you these days? As for me, I have abandoned Satori altogether and I'm trying to become as deeply attached as I can to as many people and things as possible. <laughs> so what I'm pointing out to you is that this basic seeing that it's all da, da, da provides a possibility for you to become involved in it much more incautiously than you normally are. To express feeling, to love, to uh, throw yourself at the mercy of uh, the goings-on completely, you see? So that this very perception of the illusion makes it possible to live up the illusion. And so if someone, therefore, is always in his attitude to life, detached and reserved, it indicates, you see, that there's still a primordial fear of getting involved. And I must say that, you see, I can't understand that very well. I don't understand what people expect that a so-called enlightened person should not need this, that, and the other. It might be beautiful surroundings, it might be the love of the opposite sex, it might be, uh, I don't know what. You shouldn't need that. In other words, you should scrub everything down to basic, basic. And the end of that is, you know, let's scrub the planet. Let's get all this disease called life off it and have a nice clean rock. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in color. I believe in, if you're going to do anything in the way of the illusory dance, let's live it up. Let's really do it. And let's not be, take ourselves so damn seriously that we have to be scrubbed all the time of any kind of ornamentation or frivolity. <laughs> oh, hooray! But you see what all this is dependent on. All this is dependent upon being able to get back to the point where it's da 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 da. Now that's what comes in meditation. Now, don't misunderstand me if I say practice in meditation. Don't be in a state of expectation, working day after day to improve your meditation. Meditation doesn't like that. You just do it. But it is true that as time goes on, and you are in that state of silence, you will see this quality of the world. Now the most difficult pains and problems to deal with are those that are monotonous. Whereas you can see the possibility of a kind of ecstatic self-abandonment in a catastrophic agony. What really gets people down are those ones that drag on day after day after day after day, like having to lie with bed sores in a very uncomfortable situation in traction or something of that kind, or a, just a perennial difficulty that drips, 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 drips like the water torture every day. Now this is the kind of situation in which meditation shows its value. That you are increasingly in a state of consciousness where 
the world is babbling. Every one of us has something, you know, that we say we don't like to do. Washing dishes, doing accounts. But when you get into the meditation consciousness, you see that nothing is more important than anything else, or less important. There is no way of wasting time. Because what is time for except to be wasted? <laughs> and you would be, furthermore, you've got your, your, you're accustomed now to sitting and doing nothing. I mean, meditation itself is the perfect waste of time. Out of Your Mind now continues with the next lecture from the Inevitable Ecstasy Lecture Series. Now, I want to get down to the simplest possible nitty-gritty of what we've been talking about in a very easy way. to ask ourselves the question, quite fundamentally, what's all the trouble about? In other words, what is your state of mind when you contemplate the possibility of everything becoming nothing? All right, so the universe is a transitory system, like a bubble, like smoke, like foam on the water. And so, how easy? Just go along with it, dissolve. So, what's the problem? Why, why don't we want to give up? What do we think we're going to get by holding on and by resisting the dissolution. Now, I'm not saying at the moment that uh, as I'm a sort of preacher advocating giving up. What I'm interested in for you to feel is what do, what do you really feel like inside at the prospect of there being nothing, of this whole thing being a bubble that dissolves. You see, about death, the reality of approaching death, people are apt to feel chilly cold, lonely, scared because it's an unknown. The, the most frightening thing about death is there might be something beyond it and you don't know what it is. You remember facing the world as a child or at any time the world is full of threats mostly from other people and there are monsters. There are all sorts of things which scare you but beyond every monster is death. Dissolution is the end of it all. And by and large, the art of government is to fill that void beyond death with threats of a rather unspecified nature. So that we can rule people by saying, if you don't do as I tell you, I'll kill you. Or you'll kill yourself. 
And so long as we can be scared of that, and so long as we can be made to think of death as a bad thing, we can be ruled. And that is why no government likes mystics. Because if we define the mystic as the person who is no longer scared of death, because the mystic is in the simplest possible language the person who understands that you have to have nothing to have something. <laughs> so, you can't fundamentally scare the mystic with death. Because, say, well, what end can it all come to? What's all the trouble about? The most it can come to is nothing. I mean, there may be some troubles on the way of resisting this, basically resisting it. I mean, as you might say, the very cells in your body resist their dissolution. And so, in this resistance, there's an experience called pain, which we've been discussing. But beyond pain is, is annihilation. Or so it seems, anyway. What will it be like to go to sleep and never wake up? Nobody can think about it. But what is that state when you're teased out of thought? See, get with it. Going to sleep and never waking up. This is not, as you would fantasize it, a state of being in the dark forever. It is not like being buried alive. Because then there's an experience of darkness. Now I remember a little while ago uh, having at one of my seminars a girl who was born blind. And I had the most interesting discussion with her because she doesn't know what darkness is. The word is absolutely meaningless to her. Because she's never seen light. Now so, when you really think about nothingness, it, it becomes like what I've often referred to, is how your head looks to your eyes. And behind the eyes you don't see darkness, do you? Right now. You are not aware of a contrast of light here and black there. Behind the visual field, this way, you can't see darkness. There is simply nothing conceivable at all. Neither darkness nor light. See? All right. So, might one venture to say almost that that area of blankness we call death is what lies behind the eyes. In other words, it is what we can't think about <laughs> that's what's watching. <laughs> in other words, the farthest we can go in thinking about nothing, you see, we get to the root of the matter. Let me put this in another way. The world is form. Now, you cannot look for the origin of form in form. Because what you would get then would be a, a universe where you couldn't make out any form at all because there was so much of it. It would be like writing a letter on top of a newspaper and then putting a picture over that 
and then doing something else until there wasn't a single square millimeter of paper left, of blank paper. Nobody could read anything. But one can read, one can see form, one can see the world, simply because there's always emptiness behind it. So you see, in this way, emptiness being the mother of form. And you can always say, yes, only the form is there, that's all that's real. But that is only saying, it's all that is figure. What about background? It always has to be there. So let's go on then into our visualization, our imagination. Use your imagination for all it's worth. to think yourself into the fact that of this whole sense of importance, of vitality, of aliveness, of being, is simply a sudden experience which was nothing before it started and will be nothing after it's over. That is the simplest possible thing you could believe in. <laughs> it requires no intellectual effort, nothing. Supposing that's the way it is. Now I repeat, what's your inside feeling about that? Supposing, let's say, you feel sorry. For whom is this sorrow? Who, when it's all over, will there be to feel sorry? You say, I regret now that this thing is going to come to an end. But when it's come to an end, nobody will either regret or uh, be happy about it. That will be that. So in a way, you can say, well, this feeling of sorrow that I have that it's going to come to an end is really rather irrelevant because let me look at the thing from the other direction. Supposing it never would come to an end. In other words, here is this alternation of joy and sorrow. And however happy I am today, I'm always going to feel miserable later on. And then maybe happy again, but then after that miserable. And this is never, never going to stop. I just can't get rid of the damn thing. Well, that's pretty depressing, isn't it? I mean, when you think it through. So you say, well, let's make a compromise between these two possibilities. One is that uh, this compromise is, in other words, that it will disappear altogether, but then it'll start again. Because when it starts again, it'll feel like it does now, which is that it never happened before. <laughs> so uh, you're, you're always in the same place, just like you feel now. That's supposing that the Hindus are right, that the universe lasts for 4,320,000 years and then it vanishes and then it starts and runs for another 4,320,000 years and then it vanishes and it does it again and it does it and does it and does it and does it and there is no end to this. But fortunately, because of the forgettery every 4,320,000 years, it doesn't become a totally insufferable bore. There is this blank space, this trough between the crests of the waves. You see? Now the Hindus thought about that and they got tired and they, they thought about the possibility of moksha, liberation or nirvana 
from the everlasting cycle of appearing and disappearing. But then when they had thought that through, the Buddhists, for example, having really said, now we've got the trick. As the Buddha said after his enlightenment, now I've found you out, you who build the house. I'm going to take the house apart. The roof beam is brought down. Desire is the builder of the house. See, I've found you. Never again shall you build it. And the Buddhists thought that one over. They asked, they're crazy. We found a way out of samsara, the wheel of birth and death. And somebody one day said, but isn't that rather selfish? You get yourself out. What about all the other people? Don't you have any feeling of compassion? Oh, yes, they said, of course. Oh, we forgot that, didn't we? Uh, <laughs> uh, let's come back again and uh, help all these people out. Then they got very sophisticated about it, and they said, look, if nirvana is released from birth and death, then they're opposed. And so nirvana and birth and death go together, and they will have to imply one another. So you're only really released if you see that, if you see that nirvana and birth and death are the same thing. Now I'm going to pull a fast one on you. <laughs> so, every time an incarnation occurs, it feels like this one. See, it might be quite different. We might be reincarnated in another universe as beings of an altogether different shape. See, not at all like human beings. But because we were used to it, we would feel that that was the human shape. We would say, well, that's natural, obviously, obviously, that's the way things are. So naturally, if you appeared in the form of a, a spider, you would look around at other spiders and say, well, yes, of course, this is a this is natural shape to be in. This is the human shape. Something that is not us looks at us and thinks we look perfectly terrible. I mean, imagine how you look to a fish. Clumsy, cumbersome, stupid-looking thing. Because the fish is so elegant and graceful and can slide through the water so beautifully. The human beings can't even swim properly. <laughs> so don't, don't you see that in every world that comes into being or could come into being, it seems just like it seems now. And every species that you could belong to would seem like this one. It would have its up end of what is highly intelligent and its low end of what is not so intelligent. You would be aware of superior forces and inferior forces. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the idea of mastering a situation unless there were situations you couldn't master. Now, we are not aware of species, of beings above us, unless you cultivate those forms of psychic awareness where you think you're in touch with angels or something of that sort. But the things that appear to be above us are great natural processes. Only we think they're rather stupid, only very tough, too strong for us. Earthquakes, the elements, also some little ones. See, the virus is a very troublesome being. And this is where a human being really finds himself at his wit's end in dealing with molecular biology.
So, you know, if the monsters don't get you, the minsters will. <laughs> the insects, you see? But at any rate, whatever level you're on, it always appears to be the same one. Now, we, therefore, naturally, don't we, we feel we're in the middle. We feel, for example, with the telescope that there is a world greater than us that is infinitely greater. We feel with the microscope there's a world below us that's infinitely smaller, and we seem to stand in the middle. Of course you seem to stand in the middle. Every creature stands in the middle, because if you stand on a boat in the middle of the ocean and you turn around through an angle of 360 degrees, you will see the same distance in every direction. That's because you see. And your sensitivity to sight or the intensity of light is the same in every direction. So you're in the middle. You're always in the middle. Where else would you be? In other words, anything that perceives anywhere is always in the middle. Anything that grows anywhere is always in the middle. It's betwixt and between. And the middle always has, therefore, extremes. It has extremes in space as far west and as far east as you can think, as far on and as far back. And there's always a beginning and there's always an end, just as there's a left and a right, or a top and a bottom. So, also, if you are aware of a state which you call is, or reality, or life, this implies another state called isn't, or illusion, or unreality, or nothingness, or death. There it is. You can't know one without the other. And so as to make life poignant, it's always going to come to an end. That is exactly, don't you see, what makes it lively. Liveliness is change, is motion. And motion is going like this, see, going to fall out and be gone. So, you, you see, you're, you're always at the place where you always are, <laughs> only it keeps appearing to change. And you think, wowee! A little further on, we'll get that thing. <laughs> uh, I hope we don't go further down so that we lose what we already have. But that is built into every creature's situation, no matter how high, no matter how low. So, in this sense, all places are the same place. And the only time you ever notice any difference is in the moment of transition. When you go up a bit, you gain. When you go down a bit, you feel disappointed, gloomy, lost. You can go all the way down to death. Somehow, there seems to be a difficulty in getting all the way up. Death seems so final. Nothingness seems so very, very irrevocable and permanent. But then if it is, what about the nothingness that was before you started? So don't you see, 
what we've left out of our logic, and this is part of the game rule of the game that we are playing, the way we hoodwink ourselves is by attributing powerlessness to nothingness. We don't realize that is a complete logical fallacy. On the contrary, it takes nothing to have something. Because you wouldn't know what something was without nothing. You wouldn't know what the form is without the background space. You wouldn't be able to see anything unless there were nothing behind your eyes. Now imagine yourself with a spherical eye. You can see all around. Now what's in the middle? See? Even if I have all this behind me in view, suddenly I will find that there is something in the middle of it all. There's a hole in the middle of, of reality. Like now, there seems to be not so much a hole but a wall. But any animal which had eyes in the back of its head would have the sensation I'm describing. Now you may say to me, well, all that's wishful thinking. Because when you're dead, you're dead, see? <laughs> now, wait a minute. What's that state of consciousness that talks in that way? This is somebody saying something who wants to make a point. Now, what point does that sort of person want to make? Like when you're dead, you're dead, see? Why, that's one of the people who want to rule the world. It's to frighten you about death. Death is real, see. I mean, it's just, it's just, don't indulge in wishful thinking. All you people who dream of an afterlife and heavens and gods and mystical experiences and eternity, oh, you're just wishy-washy people. You don't face the facts. What facts? How can I face the fact of nothing, which is by definition not a fact? You see? All this is twaddle from whichever way you look at it. <laughs> so if you really go the whole way and see how you feel at the prospect of vanishing forever of all your efforts and all your achievements and your, all your attainments turning into dust and nothingness what is the feeling? what happens to you? It's a curious thing that in the world's poetry this is a very common theme. The earthly hope men set their hearts upon turns ashes, or it prospers, and anon like snow upon the desert's dusty face lighting a little hour or two is gone. All kinds of poetry emphasizes the theme of transience. And there's a kind of nostalgic beauty to it. A banquet hall deserted. After the revelry, all the guests have left and gone their ways. And the table with overturned glasses, crumpled napkins, breadcrumbs, and dirty knives and forks lies empty. And the laughter echoes only in one's mind.
And then the echo goes. The memory. The traces are all gone. That's the end, you see. Do you see, in a way, how that is saying the most real state is the state of nothing? That's what it's going to all come to. With these physicists who think of the energy of the universe running down, dissipating in radiation gradually, 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 until there's nothing at all left. And for some reason or other, we're supposed to find this depressing. But if somebody is going to argue that the basic reality is nothingness, where does all this come from? Obviously from nothingness. <laughs> Once again, you get how it looks behind your eyes. See. So cheer up, you see. This is what is meant in Buddhist philosophy by saying we are all basically nothing. When the sixth patriarch says the essence of your mind, that's how it is behind your eyes, is intrinsically pure. The pure doesn't mean a non-dirty story state of mind, as it is apt to mean in the word Puritan. Pure means clear, void. So you know the story when the sixth patriarch was given his office as successor because he was truly enlightened. There was a poetry contest and the losing one wrote the idea that the mind, the consciousness, was like a mirror which had to be polished. And constantly one, I have to polish my mirror, I have to purify my mind, see, so that I'm detached and calm and clear-headed, you know, buddhaed. <laughs> but the one who won the contest said, there is no mirror. And the nature of the mind is intrinsically void, so where is there anywhere for dust to collect? See? So in this way, by seeing that nothingness is the fundamental reality, and you see it's your reality, then how can anything contaminate you? All the idea of your being scared and put out and worried and so on is just nothing. It's a dream. Because you're really nothing. But this is the most incredible nothing. And the sixth patriarch, likewise, went on to contrast emptiness of indifference, which is sort of blank emptiness. See? If you think of this nothingness as mere blankness, and you hold on to the idea of blankness, and kind of grisly in, about it, you haven't understood it. He said, nothingness is really like the nothingness of space, which contains the whole universe. All the sun, moon, and stars, and the mountains and rivers, and the good men and the bad men, and the animals and the insects, the whole bit, all are contained in void. So out of this void comes everything, and you are it. What else could you be? So what I'm showing you is that all this hocus-pocus about the fear of nothingness is that, truly speaking, nothingness is what we want to talk about when we talk about the spiritual. Only, it's all been ignored. 
It's all been put down. And say, oh, nothingness. Bleh! Heaven preserve us from that. <laughs> but that's where the secret lies. And obviously the secret always lies in the place you never think of looking for it. In mythology, this comes again and again. Okay, this is Christmas. Where is the Christ born? In a palace? No, where no one would think of looking. In pigsty. Although, <laughs> I have a Japanese friend who once said to me, he said, you know, the real difference between Christianity and Buddhism is that Christ was the son of a carpenter and Buddha the son of a prince. <laughs> I thought that was rather funny. <laughs> well, we don't know who the prince is without the carpenter, do we? <laughs> now, it's in that sense, really, that I could suggest to you that you meditate on nothingness. I know you can't think about it. But yet, when it becomes perfectly clear to you that that's what you are, and what you were before you were born, where can anybody stick a knife into you? Fundamentally, you see? All right. <laughs> Get it, because this is really the secret of the whole thing. If you see that, now we, we want to go on and be able to answer all the people who will come bug us about it. Because whether you say anything about it to other people or not, people are going to bug you about this. And say, oh, no, 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 no. You, you, you really are something. You know, you'll know it. Oh, wowee, you know, the life isn't the way you think. It's going to be awful, see? It's going to be real. Ooh. And uh, the, uh, they'll say, oh, you can Where in such a philosophy as this is there any basis for the love of one's fellow men? For joy in children, for cultivating gardens, for doing this and that and the other, see? Well, I say, there is no basis in it. That's the same way there is no basis in emptiness for form, or so it seems. But only precisely to the degree that you have discovered the nothingness that you are. You find you're suddenly full of energy. That is energy. It's the source and origin of energy. So that when, you know, there's, not, there's sort of nothing in your way, then you can do exactly what I was describing as having this glee for going into doing this, that, and the other thing and being thoroughly creative. But you can't be creative out of just plain somethingness. You need nothingness to be creative. And that's what we are. And this, too, is, is real nothingness. 
And I think it's not darkness, 